Constantly looking through a magnified optic with one eye and nothing with the other eye, uh, your mind starts playing little games with you. Kind of crushing headache because I can't focus. But like I said, I saw that first first movement, focused in on it. Second movement, I'm like, damn, I think that's him. And about that time I got the, the magnification set up, sure enough, his whole face came straight up over the, the dashboard looking out the window, and then he was gone again. It was just a half a heartbeat. It was just a flash. And while I'm running all this through my head at Mach 2, the two primary instructors that that ring true in my head were my first sniper instructors. And the one thing they always harped on was, don't be greedy. Quarter up your target, shoot center of mass. Whatever it is that you can see, shoot center of mass. Don't get greedy and take that perfect sniper shot for the head. Take your time, make your shot count, but take the biggest piece that you can see, which happens to be his chest. And you have to remember that his technology was probably some of the most advanced that ever been deployed in the continental United States up to this time. 
I mean, this is stuff that was going off in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I said earlier, he made just one minor mistake on his hard wire, and if he hadn't done that, he would have had, he'd have been a much, much tougher out. You know, we never picked the time, the place, or how this, how any of this stuff is going to work. We just respond to it. You know, you can train and train and train, and it's not the same. But when you get on these hot deals like this, I'm telling you, this cat had unbelievable repertoire of possible skills that he could have done. And when you look back about how nobody was injured or killed, it's unbelievable. It really is. He had planned for everything except one thing he didn't plan for, 5-0. That was the only thing he didn't plan for. And that's what got us through on that day. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Prologue, June 2015. The Ford E-Series Armored Blue Cargo Van was purchased off eBay for $82.50. At one point, the bid increased from $6,000, then to $7,000, then $8,000, even though there were no competing offers. The van was described as a zombie apocalypse assault vehicle with gun ports capable of drive-by mow-downs and full armor bulletproof windows. The bumper was reinforced with steel tubing. The tactical sideboards were installed when you only need swords and axes for a drive-by zombie assault. The interior was equipped with bolted-down benches for easy access to its gun ports for maximum assault. This unique vehicle will leave the 30263 Georgia zip code and make a nearly 800 mile trek to meet its new home and its new destiny. From the moment it entered Dallas County, the fuse was lit, the stage was set, and the plan will unfold on June 13, 2015 as it traveled to 1400 South Lamar to get its revenge. And this new vehicle of war will become a lonely tomb by sunrise weak people revenge strong people forgive intelligent people ignore albert einstein welcome back ato family this is joe today i'm with kent wolverton the great danny canetti and two amazing co-hosts to discuss the events from dallas police headquarters on june 13 2015 the story you're about to hear is somewhat overlooked and lost in Dallas police history. The story and unfolding of events plays out like a Hollywood movie script. But this actually happened. 
it happened to our officers, to the city, and to the Dallas Police Department. The police response and actions taken that night were historically significant for American policing. To tell the story, we had people that were in the middle of it and helped write City of Dallas history and law enforcement history. It's the ATL's honor to welcome on retired Dallas SWAT operator Jude Braun and active Dallas SWAT member Keith Reeg. Jude Braun, Keith Reeg, welcome to the stage. Thank you, sir. Appreciate First it. time uh, y'all doing a podcast? Yes, sir. All right. Well, Correct. We'll, we'll ease you in. <laughs> Be gentle. Yeah, <laughs> very gentle. Real quick, everyone has their phones on silent or vibrate? Correct. No. Judy, no, flip phone on? Oh, okay. Flip phone. <laughs> it's an uh, old Motorola. It's got a jitterbug. It's a Razor, the original. You might need to help him, Keith. Yeah, I think that's all. <laughs> I mean, you might have a double, not a millennial in technology, that's for sure. Well, you are, you are pretty good with some technology. I saw a picture of you in the back of the APC with a... He can make an IED. Okay. Yeah, he can make an IED. He just can't put his phone on vibrate. (laughs) Danny hit it right on the head. All right. We're going to finally tell the story of the 2015 attack on DPD headquarters. Uh, It was June 13th, 2015. Sadly, what happened a year later, I think, overshadows that event. It was pretty historic. And... And a lot of reasons, somebody attacking major police headquarters with assault rifle and, a, and basically an armored war wagon that he bought off eBay. Yep. And there's a lot of firsts that happened uh, happened that day in, in law enforcement history. But there's a lot of people still in our department. I think that especially the new the new folks coming in, they get 2015 mixed up with what happened in 2016 in that tragedy. Because I've, I've, I've talked about the the headquarters attack to some people and it's that, you know, like civilians, they're non-police, non-first responders. They're like, Oh, that's terrible. Those five officers were killed. I go, no, it's, there was something different. There was a different incident that happened a year earlier. So the date is June 13, 2015. We're going to get to, but I want to start a little bit before that and give a little backstory on, on the suspect and what got him to that day. Are you ready to get into it? Yes, sir. Let's do it. So I have a copy of an affidavit, and it goes back to April 30th of 2013. Suspect Bulware, he attacked his mother and also his uncle, and there were charges filed. And that's what kind of set this in motion um, with his anger towards police. And there was a child custody, child custody battle that ensued from this arrest. During the arrest, he made he was arrested in Paris, uh, Texas, and he made several several threats against schools and churches and his family. And the report shows that an incident began at the mother's house in May of 2013. Police said Bulwer grabbed his mother around the neck with both of his hands, began choking her. Bulwer's uncle tried to fight him off. He punched him a few times. The mother called 911, and he left. A warrant was issued by Dallas police, and he was arrested later in Paris, Texas. He was arrested by Lamar County sheriffs. He spent 21 days in jail for this offense. Because of his threats against schools and churches, um, he had some firearms that were seized during this 
uh, by the sheriffs. Later on, the charges were, were dismissed in 2014. He then began like a custody battle for his, his child. The mother was trying to get custody of, of the child, and it, it just became really bitter. Uh, there was a, a family judge that was involved. Uh, he began making posts on her page. We have like an outline, uh, some of the screenshots of the post. He's basically accusing her of blocking testimony on how the U.S. Navy stationed down in Pensacola, Florida, used to solicit underage prostitutes for Vietnam. She is trying to block testimony on how I grew up around Mafia and that the judge spent it replacing him with Lori Hockett. He just made a bunch of wild posts on her page. And it led to the judge filing a harassment charge in 2015. According to the court records, a judge recently granted custody of his son to the mother after both he and the child's mother were determined not to be fit in sole possession of the son. After this, Boulware became very angry with Dallas police and his family and started plotting an attack. In June of 2015, he apparently got on eBay and he started bidding on a vehicle. The vehicle was, was described as a zombie apocalypse assault vehicle and a troop transport. The exact verbiage from the post, it also has benches in the back so you can take turns resting during long zombie sieges. The, the <laughs> tactical step boards are installed Jesus. for when you only need swords and axes for drive-by mowdowns. The bumpers are made of reinforced steel tubing, so no dents from smashing zombie heads. It's full armor-plated. It has bulletproof windows, just in case you can run over zombie hunting hordes who might try to take this bad boy from you. <laughs> it, it was it was very did, described. Did you, find, did you find a copy of the old eBay advertisement, or was I, this in the news that they? No, found I no, I, I got a copy of the actual wow. eBay post. Wow! Holy cow! Yeah, the description <laughs> added: this full armored zombie busting vehicle. Features convenient gun port, so no zombie juice touches you during the mass zombie takedown. I think it was an old Georgia sheriff yes. van, was it not? Yeah. Y- yes. Right. And it was up armored by Lenko. So really? I did not know, know that. that. Lenko has pretty good product, and they're, they're the ones that had the armoring around the windows and uh-huh. all the other armor on there. So they, they didn't necessarily sell that van model. They probably took a van specifically for them and just armored it for yeah. them. Armored it up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's... The armor plating was not around the whole vehicle. It was just around the, the port windows. Uh, Unbeknownst to yeah. us, we thought the yeah. whole thing was yep. armored up. Yep. So it's as as the guys are shooting at it, they're like, okay, this is not going through. A lot of the rounds actually did penetrate into the vehicle. You're jumping ahead, Keith. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. <laughs> so it was a 1995 E-Series three-door van. It was bought for $8,200 off eBay. From what y'all know, I want to kind of discuss, you just kind of touched on the armor inside. And yet, was there a camera system, too, that we later found out? Inside the van? Yes. I believe there was. Okay. I don't know if it was backup camera, or the, but there was some kind of a camera system. He, yeah, he had like a home security camera set up in there to look out. Okay. Yeah. Jude, can you describe the uh, what you know about the the window thickness? Yeah, the window was uh, 13, six, 13 sixteenths thick on the front windshield. And um, it had multiple layers, seven different layers. Now, some of the layers are only, a, you know, point, 0.25, like a polymer 
carbonate to go over the window to make it like an anti um, anti spalling or something anti spalling like, like on the inside. So, but those layers together, that thing cost like fifty five dollars a square foot when they made it back in ninety five, and uh, I'll never forget um, after the incident was over. Somehow or another, uh, we were down at the um, auto pound, talked to the homicide detective. He said, no, we don't need the glass anymore. So somehow it, it got uh, appropriated, I guess you would say. And we had it at the range, and there was seven rounds that our patrol guys had shot that would have been in the bottom of a like a slurpy cup within about a four-inch circle right over where he was at. But he never he might have caught some spalling. But he never took a good round from that. Where I think he got hit was more on the underbelly, on the side, where there was no protection. The protection were around the three windows on each side, and the two windows on the back, and the front windshield were very well armored up. Wow. Jude does not have any actual notes. He's just going completely off his memory on this stuff, and it's going to be like 99.9% accurate. It's remarkable, Jude, that you remember all of these details and it's not just this incident but probably your entire life you could tell us the thickness of the glass of every room you've ever been in (laughs) but uh yes that's completely free-handed here by jude yeah he came empty-handed uh and you know going back to chris webb's episode he mentioned that we needed to get you on on the show and that was hell that was back in 2021 but you were brought up then and and yeah we had to have you for this one Another thing I was going to mention is that the hood of the vehicle was fiberglass. And we didn't know until after the thing almost burned to the ground, it was fiberglass. But fortunately, that was where Keith had to use some of his shot blames. It was on that. Not that it would have mattered when you're using a 5.0, but everything else is armored up to the hilt. But there was weaknesses on it, and we just didn't know at the time. It's it's kind of amazing that, you know, all that stuff, and we didn't pick up on it. Well, I was prepping for this yesterday, and I was over here, and I ran into Sergeant Gordon Fulton, and I didn't know this, but he actually he left that night, and we're about to get. I'm about to just segue right into June 13th, 2015. He left that night, and he actually saw the vehicle uh, drive driving to the uh, headquarters to the back parking lot. Mm-hmm. He he assumed that it was a new, a new vehicle that y'all had or narcotics. Mm-hmm. Because it had that look. I mean, it, yep. it, it looked like an it looked like one of your older APCs back back in the day. Yep. Back in the Claggett and Commander day. So approximately twelve thirty a.m., um, this vehicle arrived at DPD headquarters and it and it went through the back parking lot, which at the time it wasn't secured. Correct. And you, anybody could just drive right up to the back of the headquarters and park in that lot. And there was like a, just a short distance from the back of the headquarters. And then he placed a, a duffel bag out in that south parking lot. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Suspect then drove to the front of DPD headquarters and parked, and he went inside. And this is on, at the time, 1400 South Lamar. No one was visible at DPD front desk. Uh, he pulled the fire alarm, and then he exited. Is that right, Danny? Um, he ban- then began firing several rounds at the front of the station and the windows and the glass doors. Uh, staff inside called uh, 911 to advise headquarters under attack, and that's what the listener heard uh, during the um, during the intro uh, of 
people inside. There was it was full of detectives that some of them actually came out and and some patrol actually responded out there and took rounds. Right. His primary response was he was going to set off his IED in the parking lot. And we know from the timeline by the ATF, after they did the post-blast, they were able to capture every time he tried to call on his cell phone. So he tried to set that off. When that didn't happen, then he went to plan B, which is grab his hardware from his weapon systems, and he went to work on headquarters after that. Do you know how many shots he fired? I think it was around 168. Okay. And what and what? What type of rifle was he using? 7.62 by 39. And there's a picture of him in, uh, I believe it was Capella's up in Allen. Mm-hmm. He's buying 18 boxes of uh, 123 grain soft point by Herder. So it's 360 rounds right there. Yeah. The day of. I saw that on the, on, on the news story. There's the video of mm-hmm. him of him uh, buying all that ammo. Uh, the, the audio that I pulled was from was from dallas news and they uh they actually mm-hmm. had that in there so he fired at several uh officers that responded uh the radio traffic uh was hectic uh no officers were were hit by this gunfire do we do you know if he was hit at all <clears throat> i believe when he was talking to negotiators hours later he mm-hmm. admitted to being hit uh probably three times maybe like the leg stomach shoulder and he caught something alongside of his face. Um, you know, a lot of times when people are shot in the stomach, they're re- requesting water, and he was requesting water several times during negotiations. So can't tell for sure, but uh, we do believe that underneath the underbelly. And then, then when he landed in Hutchins, he got out and opened up on the patrol guys that were following him, and there was quite a few holes laying around outside the van before he got back in. So it's very probable that he probably was winged a little bit was he wearing armor do you know he had armor with him he had a uh, face mask he had like ski pants that were armored uh he had a gas mask what else he have keith he had a, a for us be a heavy siege vest like our entry vests uh but i don't know if he was wearing it uh all the pictures that i've seen it was laying on the on the deck of the uh the van itself Okay, so when he exited, he actually went to headquarters. He was, as far as we know, he wasn't wearing right. actually the heavy vest yeah. when he approached. There's a video of this on YouTube, so the listeners can actually go on and watch it. But you see the van pull up to headquarters in the night. Uh, I think some officers you even see him approach the van with their flashlights to try and check it out, like what is this? Mm-hmm. And when they get close, he opens fire on them, and that kicks off the whole thing. So he starts shooting into the front of the headquarters lobby, which blew out all the glass um, officers start responding there's some officers already at headquarters around the corner in patrol vehicles um, and they basically kind of box him in on the street a little bit from a distance so mm-hmm. we had officers uh, a Choa and Morales yeah so we had officers south on Lamar and then also some officers come over on Bellevue and start exchanging gun fire with them and I think they realized that this thing was armored I don't want to speak for him um, and uh no disrespect to any of the officers uh, who were there that night with us, just telling the story as we know it. If we get these facts wrong, uh, I apologize for that. But I will say that um, those officers did a great job that night in dealing with that threat right there outside of headquarters. Oh, yeah, especially dealing with somebody that they were outgunned from the start approaching that vehicle that was armored. Um, uh, I have in my notes Officer uh, Achoa and Morales. They were in a marked squad car. They were traveling westbound on uh, 900 Bellevue and they approached and they they had to take cover behind the uh the trunk of the vehicle yes okay 
and there a lot of this uh, the info we're getting was from body cam footage mm-hmm. and uh, also there were some citizens videos from across that the uh, south side flats that uh captured a big old shootout. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah they got some pretty good video from the roof line yeah he drove he got it got into his uh his vehicle and he drove towards their car and actually hit it and then he turned and he he began driving uh northbound of lamar and that's when the chase was on um i want to so when all this started kicking off and and it started unfolding from this point where were y'all at and how did y'all how did y'all get notified that's that's the funny part <laughs> so I'll, I'll lead off with that um i was in mark cuban's front yard um working an off-duty job for him and i got the 911 call or not the 911 call but the call from communications and it literally sounded like they were under attack at city hall they were screaming so much and so i tried to get as much information as i could at that point we had a different system to notify all the swat team it was very convoluted with a bunch of different numbers you had to enter and with the information i had um you basically have to speak into it and it says a recording out to everybody else uh and i didn't have any information about where this guy was or really what was going on so i think i said uh everybody in my squad let's go to headquarters and see what's there everybody else listen to the radio and uh <laughs> and find, the find the guy yeah um and that was that was really awkward because typically we have all the information that we ever want as far as what's a safe route how many people do we need you know what equipment are we looking for all that stuff goes into that message but that one was kind of a hey uh listen, listen to the radio here grab we go. your gear and let's go yeah, it was uh it was a little chaotic to say the least uh, i was actually at my house i'd done something during the day and i turned my phone on to vibrate and i'd forgotten about it well at my house there's really only one spot that it gets a decent cell signal so that's where my phone was sitting on the charger well Again, unbeknownst to me, I went to bed and left my phone on vibrate. Well, we were on call, so I'm like, okay, great. So I woke up to the sound of my phone basically vibrating off the windowsill and hitting the floor from all the text messages and call-outs that were coming through. Kind of a light sleeper. So when I woke up, I'm like, oh, crap. I think it was my phone. So I go running in there, and I think I missed somewhere around 100 text messages from my guys that initially started with Chris Nilsson, who was out of town, he's listening to all this, and he's letting us know that headquarters is under attack even before Sarge put out the call out. So that's that started our text thread. And this is shortly after I got rid of my flip phone and went to a real phone, so I'm still learning how to use that thing at the time. And I looked through this, and I'm like, my first words out of my mouth are, oh, shit, I missed it. <laughs> I I don't think I ever got dressed that fast and ran out of my house. I think I scared the hell out of my wife. Uh, in fact, I know I did. Uh, trucking out and jumped in the car, and I did things in that Tahoe you should never do in a vehicle. <laughs> hey, you made it there. Yes, I did. <laughs> I was working an extra job on straight lane, and I was about 15 minutes from the house, and I got a call from uh, GH, Garrett Hellinger. Now, Garrett is usually as cool as a fan blade, one of those type of guys. And he's screaming, get everything we got in the armory and get downtown. I'm like, what the hell? So I switched over to the radio, and I flipped back around on 30 and headed back into downtown. And I went to the arms room and loaded up whatever I thought we would need at the time. What was that? What did you think we might need, or what did we have available that you were going to load up, or you did load up? 
Well, I want to make sure we had uh, <laughs> weapon systems that we would have needed. Uh, Zoo gun? Zoo gun was definitely in, in the back of my thigh. <laughs> That's a touchy subject. But, uh, <laughs> but I will say I made a big mistake because when I got down into the back in the armory, we had some uh, specialty munitions. And I was from here to Keith. All I had to do was reach and grab them, and I didn't. I was thinking armor piercing, armor piercing, armor piercing. But we had some stuff that would have been perfect for this. And I made a big mistake not grabbing them. It came into play later on in the in the operation, but uh, everything worked out because we had a little time delay, and we were able to to uh, cover up from my initial big mistake there. Now, Daniel, do you remember anything about an armored car? Yeah, so I had actually had a long week in court the entire week. Um, I was uh, in court with a case with one of my last defendants from an investigation I had when I was undercover with narcotics on the cartel. So that Friday was the final day. Jury came back with a verdict of guilty. That night I'm kind of celebrating with Brandon Barry, just hanging loose, having some drinks. And all of a sudden we start getting text messages from Ryan Scott saying, headquarters under attack by an armored vehicle. And then it was all capital letters. It was Argid for SWAT, Argid for SWAT. <laughs> it it was craziness. And I actually text back, are you drunk? <laughs> and then the call out came and phones and drinks went flying everywhere and we rushed out of there. I had to drop Brandon off to get his Tahoe. And then I raced back to my house and grabbed my Tahoe and jumped in it. So we're listening to the radio and by then we're hearing the van had been in that shooting at headquarters and now it was taking off and had made it to the freeway and it's heading south uh, out of Dallas. So at that point, we're just jumping in on the freeway to get behind this thing and chase it down. Was armored, is that like the equivalent of fragile for fragile? Yep. Okay. That, yeah, absolutely. That's, right. That would fit. <laughs> so he's going south. He's heading towards Wilmer. And uh, and Wilmer Hutchins is uh, for the listener that they don't know Texas. Uh, it's about thirty minutes south or less. Yeah, it's 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 a small it's a small uh, small little city, and you are trying to catch up to this. So Jude, you talked about being in the equipment room, and we've touched on it before about uh, about that role, and. I remember Matt Smith was actually upset that that he didn't get to use a zoo gun in this in this incident, mm-hmm. and you actually showed up on time uh, with all the equipment. So your role, can you describe to the listener what your role was at that at that point? Yeah, at that time, you know, we were in the uh, there was about a half a dozen of us that were in the equipment room, and uh, our equipment had increased. 20-fold from when I first came over in 87. You know, in 87, we had wheel guns and shotguns. Now we've got five APCs. These young cats come over, and the first thing they do is they get a new vest, uh, automatic weapon, you know, all this. Back then, there was five MP5s for 64 guys. Nobody had their individual. I mean, things, it's just... The proliferation of equipment has just exploded in the SWAT world. Computers, hydraulics, it's just amazing from where we started out. So you need a lot of guys down there that can 
distribute it, know what they're doing with it. There's a lot of maintenance behind the scenes. Always has to go on. Just like the guy that runs the fleet, Joe Guzman, I mean, he's responsible for 80 vehicles. And that, I mean, that's a full-time job, just parlaying between them and the people over at the shop and, you know, just to make sure we get all our vehicles up and running all the time. So that's just, you know, one fraction of it. And then you look at all the different weapon systems and uh, all our accessory equipment. It can be uh, overwhelming trying to keep up with it. Now, Keith has been exposed to it probably more. I've been gone for a few years now, but uh, he can tell you a lot better what's going on now than I can. Well, so Jude, you, you say you started SWAT in 87. That's correct. Okay. And when did you retire? In uh, 2020. Oh, so it's very, very recent. Yes. Um, well, thank you for your service, and, and especially that, that being that in SWAT that long, because you, you saw several decades of, of right. change. And with all these different weapon systems that you were you were coming across and you had to be basically had a hand in being in charge of in that room and, and getting them to the, uh, to the operators. Did you have to study each, like study the weapons and know them yourself and just know their function? Naturally, you know, somebody's mm-hmm. got to be, where does the buck stop? You know, somebody's got to yes. be in You're charge. Gatekeeper, <laughs> gatekeeper of the, right. Yeah. You know, it's, you have to have the, the uh, wherewithal to know what, what you're dealing with and, you know, and help these guys out sometimes. And so, uh, what's kind of amazing about the 50s is they're not owned by the city of Dallas. The Dallas Arms Collectors donated them to us. So you think, that sounds kind of weird, but anytime you're talking about uh, large weapon systems, explosives, it's very hard to get any traction or get anything through uh, the chain, as I would say. Because if a commander comes over, he, he doesn't want the... Uh, Nothing to shake loose. He wants the same wind blowing on the tree as yesterday. He don't want to be caught up in any one of these big hot deals. And if you mention 50 cal explosives, oh, my God. You know, you take a 50 cal, you're going to go through the – it's going to ricochet, go through a school bus, and then it's going to go downtown and hit the cathedral. Yeah. And that's their mindset, you know. (laughs) Explosives. It's it's artillery rounds. Yeah. It took us – 15, almost 20 years to get explosives in the fleet before we can get them up, let's say, legally operating with all the rules, regulations, and stuff like that. And it took, uh, it hadn't been for Dave Carpenter and Eddie Fuller, we still wouldn't have had it. Those guys were, Dave took the uh, the lead and ran with it, and then uh, when Dave left, Eddie finished it up. And they were the ones that were able to do it through the legal way, through the city attorney, and, and it just took forever. Well, you uh, Claggett and Commander talked about even the uh, the optics of of even being called SWAT back then, mm-hmm. and y'all y'all went with tactical right, right for years, yep. and then finally you 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 uh, changed the name from tactical. You just start going by SWAT, and even having machine guns back then was select fire is what the, that's what they right. were they right. had to be yep. called because yep. it didn't sound as aggressive. Ominous. People hear yep. machine guns, they think of of uh, mafia Tommy guns, and you know. And the only time we really had progress is we'd had to have a tragedy. For example, when we finally got through with the energetics is when Jeremy got shot up in the hotel off of Channel 5 when he got hit in the leg, got hit in the femur. Yep. Uh, at that time, that kind of gave us more impotence, a little more uh, momentum for the uh, the breaching side of it because at the time, we had to call one of the bomb techs. Uh, the guy may live in Fort Worth. By the time he gets to the range, picks up what he needs and gets to the scene, that could be a couple hours later. 
you know, we need something on stand, ready to go, without all this big delay. And, it, and that's what took forever. Is how do you how do we get this where it's ergonomic, but safe at the same time? So, most of us in the room know this, Joe, but I, you probably don't know. But Jude is looked at as the godfather of SWAT. If you haven't kind of sensed this already, like you would go to training in other parts of the country, and the guys would be like. Oh, yeah, you know that Dallas SWAT guy who's like the godfather? He's like, what's his name, Judd or something? Or like Jude Braun? Yeah, that's the guy. That guy knows about everything. So Jude, it rests on his shoulders that really the sniper program and the cadre in Dallas SWAT really is because Jude spearheaded this effort for years. This isn't something that happens in a week or a month or a year even. For years and made that sniper program what it is. And then later, focus the attention to the explosive breaching program. And I think it's uh, just something poignant to point out that on June 13th, 2015, it's the sniper program that comes into play. And then a year later on 7-7-2016, it's the explosive breaching program that comes into play. Yeah, let's get into that. I was going to get into the sniper program significance and also the battle that you had. It's going to be a side story to this main story, but I think it's, uh, like Danny just pointed out, it's really it's pertinent to the overall picture of, of uh, SWAT's response and then also what you actually had available to, to battle this guy. Yeah, but so it, it's always been, uh, <laughs> you know, you're on what the troops want may not necessarily be what the administration wants. But uh, got to give kudos to Tony Black. He got a hold of uh, Brown. He took him out the range. I don't know if Chief Brown was a one-star, two-star at the time. I think he was at Northeast. I can't remember back exactly. And he let him shoot the 50. This is probably 2003. Chief Brown shot a couple times. He said, that's it. Okay, no problem, you know. And eventually he got approved all the way up. Not owned by the city, still Dallas Arms Collectors. And we had to sign like a lease, you know, and they still have proprietary rights. But they did a fantastic job. They had the foresight and the understanding to say, hey, something could happen someday. You may want, may need something like this. And plus they bought 1,000 rounds of ammo for each one. So with all this, we had to do a tremendous amount of testing. How do you stop all this energy, kinetic energy, as it's traveling through the air in an urban environment? You just can't let this thing go. It can go 7,000 meters or 7,000 yards. Look on uh, any old YouTube video in Afghanistan, Iraq, and you see a mod deuce firing at night, and every fifth round is a tracer. You see tracers skipping all around the ground. <laughs> so this is, okay, how, do we, how can we get this into a usable piece of equipment? So one of the things was specialty rounds, and uh, – there was a company called uh, EBR, Energy Ballistic R- Research, and they had compressed copper rounds. So compressed copper gives us a tremendous advantage because it was used by the Hitron Coast Guard squads when they were firing at um, boat runners coming out of Cuba or whatever down in Miami area, and the rounds don't ricochet. They hit the water and they break apart. So somebody called us up one day, I don't know who the guy is today, said, hey, you guys might want to look at this. Okay, so I said, I think I set Webb down to, they originally were down in Bastrop, and he had a little property down there, and, you know, he talked to him and stuff, and we got some, and so we started, you know, working with them. But the muzzle velocity on a 50 is 15,000 foot-pounds. What's it on a 308, Keith? 
Big question here. 2,600? Probably about 3,300, 3,400. So you say, well, what is 15,000 foot-pounds? If you had 15,000 pounds and you had the rifle vertical and it went off, it would move, it'd have enough energy to move at 15,000 pounds one foot. So that's where they come up with foot-pound. Three, uh, 338, it may be around 5,000. These numbers aren't exact, but... You know, with 308, we're looking at a little over 3,000. So what does the 50 give you? It gives you an option for anti-vehicle. That's what our philosophy was. We're going to use these. If we have to take out a vehicle, we had a couple semi-chases that didn't turn out the way we wanted to. And that was part of the reasoning for the 50 was semi-chases, Aerial platform came about out of this. And there's a lot of other stuff that dovetailed into it as well. An anti-material weapon. Yes, exactly. Platform mm-hmm. to disable. Yeah, yeah you mentioned the uh, the semi. Is that was one of them you're talking about? Is when that guy took the uh, the driver, the female driver hostage, and you went on a big wild chase out west. Yes. Yeah, all the way out to somewhere out in Parker County. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know a semi could run on 18 rims for about 100 miles. <laughs> Just kept and, going and going. Yeah. And actually, at the time, I was up in the chopper. It was kind of funny. It went, uh, I was sitting on the couch watch, uh, on a Sunday to get a call. I got down to the station. Keith was already there. He had the 50 already set up. They, he ran me down there to I-20. Chopper land picked me up. And uh, we had just beginning working with the uh, helicopter unit on aerial platform. And, and this was, we were still kind of in our infancy at the time. And uh, the sergeant was, he's a real funny guy. He kept calling me 5 He goes, okay, 5 you ready? I said, yes, sir. So he just pulls up. We're right along the semi. He's going 22 mile an hour. But we don't get the authority from downtown. So I'm sitting there watching this guy. We stop and we go over to fuel in Fort Worth twice. And uh, there's an ambush point set up between Fort Worth and Arlington. And we got to go get fuel. I tell the pilot, I say, hey, buddy, can I got to see this. Can we at least wait till after the ambush? He goes, no, nah, man, we're, we're running out of court. You know, we're splashing and going, you know, just because of the weight having me in the back, you know, was a little bit, a uh, little more than normal what they're used to. So I come back, I'm expecting, and I look, and I could see miles away the chase is still going on. I can't believe it, you know. So we go down, and finally, you know, the DPS uh, jumped in and, uh, got off their couches and decided they were going to end the chase and it ended and kind of it would there was a lot of things that would could have been done better on our part so that was uh i think it was one of the maddest times i've ever been because if you're going at the same speed the vehicle's going you don't have to worry about a lead or leg it's just point aim point impact and you know it had been over in two three seconds we had to naturally had to wait to our enter team was in position because he was holding a hostage but they also had provisions for him and then the entry team to get up there as quick as possible. They were following behind an APC. So this was just like another level of frustration that uh, that we had to go through for a long time. And that lady basically saved herself, really. Right. She, 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 yeah. she took the gun from the suspect, and yeah. you ought to know at the time, she jumped out of the out of the semi and threw oh, the yeah. gun. There's a video of her actually yes. doing that, too, if y'all want to oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. listen, want to look that up. Yeah. Uh, you just see the gun kind of fly off to the side, and he stays in. Yeah. Yep. And y'all peppered him with gas afterwards, right? Right. So, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I heard DPS just jumped in and uh, plain clothes and took some shots, and then at the end they just took off. Yep. 
Yeah, um, letting us play. See yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> I had a bird's eye view. Uh, they pulled up in the Crown Vic. The guy put 30 rounds on one side, and they actually took out the radio from the, you know, normally we would take it from the front, but they took it from the back. They rolled over on the other side, reloaded, got another 30, and then the Sarge got off about barely 10 rounds with his 45. So we're looking at about 70 right. rounds that was shot into the vehicle, and, uh, you know, it stopped. Yeah, we got it done. I think we could have done it with a one or two, but, you know, yeah. kudos to them, you know, for uh, they took care of command. And we still had some of our people, and I, we caught a lot of grief on this whenever we saw our friends from the DPS. One of our commanders at the time wanted to call DPS SWAT out of Austin to come up and finish the operation because we were in Parker County, we weren't in Dallas County, you know, maybe a little bit worried about the liability or whatever yeah. it was. Not my call. But afterwards, it was brutal, I'll tell you. They, every time they saw us, they let us know about it. So back to the chase down to Wilmer, you're getting all this equipment. I mm-hmm. want Can you just describe the, uh, the, the 50 cal platform to the listener, the, uh, the model, it just, that, that what Dallas has? I know it's not ours, but we have it on loan. Right. It's uh, just your basic uh, Barrett 82A1 Um these are 29-inch uh, barrels. Originally, we had the 20-inch barrels that came on them, and then we had a little problem with the – we were shooting out of, a, out of the ship one day, and we cracked some glass at about $12,000. Damage to the helicopter, so we decided to go with the 29-inch barrel. So, you know, that's basically your uh, – not the 107s, which came along later with improvements. These are 82A1s uh, when Barrett came out in 82 with the Barrett. So. What were you driving down there to cart all this equipment? I had uh, one of the older APCs. Yeah, I saw the I saw the pictures of that. It looked pretty. It, what, what you know, roughly what year that that APC was from? I would guess it's probably about ninety eight or the two thousand four, two thousand four, two thousand five genre, I believe. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that the weirdest drive down there? Yeah, because it they the, all the officers in the Dallas Sheriff have blocked off all the entrance ramps and everything else. And it was like the Autobahn in the dark. <laughs> yeah. You were just driving down. Yeah. and Well, going, 20 wasn't like that. 45 well, was. 45 was. Wasn't. And it was like, when am I going to catch up to this? And you just all of a sudden pass an officer with their lights on just sitting on an entrance ramp. And then you go further down and there'd be more lights and sirens. And yeah, they're just I, I sitting. 20 was a parking lot for me. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, during the during the chase down uh, Hutchins, uh, a DSO, uh, a, a DSO sheriff, she basically did the use a, st- a stick on a uh, spikes on the, the stop sticks. van yes. stop mm-hmm. sticks on the yep. van right Correct. and there's actually video of the, her doing that as well mm-hmm. uh and after she after that happened how much further did he go after his uh blew the tires like a half mile quarter mile right no, pretty, i think i think it was pretty, pretty, pretty much. long it was it was over pretty fast so he, he exits off the freeway goes down into kind of a major intersection where they had like a jack-in-the-box and a bank and, uh, you know, a couple other businesses and rolls into that jack-in-the-box parking lot with patrol hot on him. Right. And they, I guess, would attempt to do a felony traffic stop essentially on him. And I think he actually exits the driver's side of the van, right? Yes. And starts returning fire yeah, on they them. they got to another gunfight and there. And they get into another gunfight there, and then the officers end up kind of becoming pinned down yeah. uh, behind their patrol cars while trying to hold this guy down in the parking lot as well. After he left that parking lot, I don't know if he tried, if he didn't see the bar ditch in front of him, 
or if he tried turning because his front wheels were flat. So when he, if he tried to turn, it may have pushed him forward, and that's when he wound up actually getting stuck in that ditch. Okay. Yeah, it came to rest at uh, the Hunter Block of South Austin in, in Hutchins, Texas. Yes. And the, the responding officers that, that actually got in that, that tried that felony stop were officers Van, Vanderslice, uh, Nowicki, Brower, Crow, Wascom, and Harris. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't think that all of them are still in the department. I think some of them have already retired uh, since 2015. But nobody got hurt. No officers were hurt from that, uh, that gunfight. So... 100 South Hutchins, uh, it's jack-in-the-box between Palestine and Harris Street. Uh, sits on the west side of uh, Southbound Service Road. Uh, restaurant faces east. Uh, van was parked in jack-in-the-box parking lot on the west driveway. Vehicle stood facing west, the trunk east. Correct. So when y'all responded, it had been it had been disabled at that point, and, and it was basically like a, a – it was BP. Well, yeah. So disabled and the the tires have been flattened. Right, he wouldn't yeah. he wouldn't drive any further. With okay, all right. So at this point, uh, y'all start showing up. Can y'all talk about your setup? All right the uh, the initial setup for for the guys. Again, I was really really late getting there. The initial setup, the guys had set up a a, a pretty tight perimeter as close as they could feel comfortable, uh, knowing that this guy was already been shooting with them with the officers. Uh, several occasions they didn't want to push too close to them so they set the apcs up off the driver's side uh there was another another one off the back back doors back by the uh yeah the other trucks or we, the, yeah uh, we, sorry, we the had other. two one on the rear right and then one almost directly behind it on the rear that was going to push up and basically evac those patrol officers right. out of there right so the patrol officers were scattered wherever they could find cover uh once the swat guy started showing up we were uh, the guys were setting up uh, containment positions uh, where they could keep an eye on the on the vehicle but stay out of the line of fire. Uh, like I said, I was literally the last SWAT guy to show up. I was almost 40 minutes behind everybody due to my debacle with my phone. Uh, once I finally got there, uh, I parked on the service road behind all the other squad cars and everything else. I was on the phone with my sergeant as, as I was making my approach. And I told him, he says, what, you know, I'm, I'm late. I'll deal with it later. What, what and where do you need me? He says, we've got enough sniper teams already. Uh, I need you on the assault team. So grab your gear and you join us. It turns out it would have been the APC over on closer to the driver's side. I'm like, roger that. No, I'll get geared up and I'll meet you there as soon as I can. So I, I grabbed my assault gear, which was at the time was just a, a basically a plate carrier, my helmet, gas mask, and my rifle. And, and then I started hauling ass down the, down the service road. Coming up to the the command post, I kind of blew past them at, at sprinting speed, let them know I'm here, and I'm joining my my, my guys over on the side. Uh, as I approached the intersection just south of the command post on the service road, I see Clubber, Mark Lang, coming northbound with the 50 on one shoulder, his sniper rifle in, the, in his other hand, and he's doing his best to run, but he's he's clearly running out of gas. He's been running for a while. I see him running at me. I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, I got to help him first. So I run up to him and says, Clubber, what do you need? He says, help me with a 50. I'm resetting up on the nose of the truck. Roger that. So I grab the 50 off his shoulder, give him a break. 
reverse course and we start trucking to the to the west we're going to go around to the front nose of the truck as i'm heading to the west i'm passing little pockets of swat guys kind of behind vehicles and behind buildings and other locations and i let them know i says i'm going to go help clubber set up and then i'll i'll be back later uh turns out i never rejoined anybody else i stayed with clubber the whole time Okay. What kind of information that we that y'all received at that point about anything that was going on at headquarters with uh, duffel bags that were laid out and and, and all of that? Did y'all, did y'all hear any of that chatter already at this point? No. At the initial at the initial setup, I didn't hear any of that intel. Uh, that that came later on after we'd already set up. Uh, like I says, I <clears throat> I joined Mark uh, just off the nose. Uh, turned out we we're about seventy something yards out, but we had a pretty good eyes into the windshield of the vehicle okay and webb was uh was stationed where he uh, was on the bank on, on the bank. Bank. He, passenger he, side yeah passenger, as a sniper passenger side if you call the nose of the truck 12 o'clock they were probably four o'clock position uh, maybe five o'clock but they were elevated on the bank roof so it gave him a pretty good eyes in to the uh, passenger side windows but being dark you know there's not a whole lot of visibility into the truck yet so just to paint the picture for the listener again, so this van is pulled into the Jack and Box parking lot. The rear end is facing the freeway. Correct. The nose or the front is actually facing a field. Correct. Which going further through that field, now you start getting into a residential area. So there's homes and everything else back there. There's some like homesteads and yeah, some were, larger pieces of property. There were actually houses directly off to his passenger side, about the 1 o'clock position. Those houses, yeah. uh, one house... A garage and another little outbuilding and another one that looked like it was pretty much falling down. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the the building that Mark and I actually got behind on the ground level. Yeah, uh, just outside that field. Uh, and then on the passenger the side was the bank, and we had a sniper team there. Correct. On the driver's side, we had one of our APCs with some guys. Correct. On the rear, we had an APC with some of our guys, mm-hmm. and then also on the rear uh, passenger quarter panel, there was a third APC. They yeah, also had some correct. There were there were uh, along that uh, backside of the the van as well. There were I don't know how many squad cars were back over there, uh, but those were the initial responding officers that showed up. So, Danny, where were you located? Uh, I initially was at the that rear passenger quarter panel. I had met up with Jerry Wante and some of the other thirties, um, and then eventually we ended up moving around to the rear, and I actually ended up being with Jude. Uh, towards the end of the evening, but this was kind of the initial formation. Once we got the patrol officers out, we just made sure that this was contained for the most part, and then we're starting to work on everything from there. Command post is trying to get us information on who is this guy, what's the deal with the shooting at headquarters, what kind of van is this that this guy's in, what do we think he might be armed with, and just kind of playing the waiting game at this point. Okay, at this time, uh, did y'all were y'all aware of any kind of explosives anywhere at, at that point? No, I, I wasn't aware of anything. Uh, if they'd said it on the radio, I didn't hear it. Um, like I says, I, I basically grabbed my stuff and I was hauling ass. Once I got established and got into that initial hide site with Mark, uh, that's when I really started focusing on the radio and listening whatever intel was happening to come out. But at that point, no, I hadn't heard anything about any explosives. Yeah, I think the first real information we got is when he decided to call 911. And then he asked to be patched in, 
or they offered to patch him into someone at the command post, and that's when he said he was injured and needed help. And that was really the first piece of information we had about who right. we were dealing with. Okay, yeah. The reason I'm asking this is because um, I, it's going to become very relevant later, you know, as far as what where y'all were positioned and what y'all were thinking as far as blast radius Yes. at that point. Uh, and the pucker factor, I imagine, went up immensely once you, you started hearing about you thinking Oklahoma City bombing, and then okay, we're going to get into that. So he called he called nine one one, and 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 said some things that that were alarming. So I'm I'm going to uh, play a little bit of that. Hello. Hi, yes sir. This is the Dallas Police Department. Did you call regarding the college Jack in the Box? Yeah, and uh, by the way, I want everything I own to go to my son. You, okay? want, you want what? Everything I own to go to my son. Who is this? If you come near this van, I'll blow the fuck out. Uh, hold on a second, sir. Yes, sir. You took everything from me. I had never even planned on fucking killing y'all. I tried to take off fucking lies. I told Trevor Bin Laden was and every fucking thing else. You sit there and you fucking attacked me. You sit there and you took every goddamn thing I fucking loved. You took everything from me when you took my son away from me. You took everything I worked for, everything I fucking loved, every goddamn thing. I had never planned on killing anybody. You took every goddamn thing from me. If you come near this van, I'll blow the fuck out of it. Do you understand me now? You're going to do what again, I'm sorry? I'm going to blow the fuck out of this goddamn van. Okay. Do not come near this van. Okay. Listen, I'm going to get your number to somebody else that's out there at the scene and let them talk to you, okay? You took every goddamn thing I love. Everything. Well, before we do all that, just give us a little sit and let's talk about this thing. There's no reason to do anything rash. I don't want to talk to you. If you come near this van, I'll blow the shit out of it. I just want everything that I know. I don't fucking go to my son. Okay. Well, how do you how are you planning on blowing your van up? I have about fucking twenty pounds of fucking C4 in this motherfucker, dude. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. Before you do all that, let's get somebody to talk to you. You try to open the van, it blows up. How is it gonna do that with the C4? You said. Uh huh. How many more people are in there with you? I'm not gonna give you that information. Okay. And what color is the van that you're in? Boys. Okay. All right, where are you at right now? I'm at Jack in the Box. Okay. All right. Okay. What's your name? You don't need to know that neither, man. Is it your van? No. Hey, man, I'm already fucking dying, dude. Let me fucking die. There's no reason for that. You don't have to do that. Hey, hey, hey. I'm not going to prison, motherfucker. Say you that understand? again. You understand that shit? No, what'd you say? You said you're not going to what? I'm not going to prison. Okay, so it doesn't leave us a whole lot of options here. Well, you know what, man? What's that? If you come near this van, I'll blow the fuck out of it. You understand that now? I understand it. Is that your van? Yeah, it's my van. Okay. All right. And you said we took your son from you? You took my son from me. You took everything I fucking love, man. How did we take I your son from you? I was the best father ever. I'm sorry? I worked... I did every goddamn thing for my son. How did we take you your son from you? You took every fucking thing from me. But how did we take your son from you? You took my son from me because you accused me of being a terrorist. 
Therefore, I fucking acted out exactly what you accused me of being. You accused me of it. You punished me for it. I didn't have a goddamn thing. All I had was some guns. I didn't even have any fucking guns on me when you pulled me over and shit that first fucking time. I didn't have shit on me. I never planned on fucking killing anybody. You took every goddamn thing I had from me. You took every fucking thing from me. Everything. I'm already fucking dying, man. Let me fucking die. No, you're not dying yet. You don't have to do all that just yet. Listen. Oh, I am dying, and I plan on dying. And I plan on dying inside this van. And if you come near this fucking van, I'll blow the fucker up. You understand that now? I, I, I understand. That's I completely. I understand that. We're not. Listen, we're not. Uh, we're not in a hurry to get out there and make that happen. Well, you better fucking just leave me the fuck alone, man. Well, okay. I don't know if that's going to be able to happen either. I mean, it's this thing is. Yeah, we're not going to be able to go anywhere. So. I just want to lay here and die, man. Are you Please. shot? Uh, dude, you don't need to know if I'm shot or not. Okay. Let me lay here and die. Say that again? If you come near this van, I will blow it up. If you come anywhere near this van, I will blow it up. Okay. Well, I understand what you're saying there, but you're saying you're wanting to lay there and die. How is it that that's going to happen? I'm fucking dying inside this van, man. Don't worry about it. I'm sorry. Okay. Say that again. Somebody else was just talking to me. What's up, bud? No, I come near this van. No, I've heard you say that, and there's nobody coming near it right now, are there? Okay, now armed with that new info, how did that change your game plan and also y'all's response, and what was the chatter like amongst the command post? Well, at that time, I think we all realized that we were probably a little bit too close, so we need to button up and back up as much as we could, but we're limited because we've got you know, the bank behind us, uh, and some other obstacles there, but uh, we did expand the perimeter. I think some of the uh, the teams that were out there also kind of got back a little bit more. I think from the beginning, once we got there, we realized this was going to be an open air option. It was the only way that not the only way, but unless you gave up, but it was probably going to be the, our best opportunity on this operation it was going to be through there because now we're talking a whole different element when he's when he's claimed that he has this amount of energetics in the van. If you come up, I'm going to, you know, set it up and try and take you out. So is he a VBID, like it was mentioned by Slacker, or is he going to become a PBID, person born? Is he going to put some devices on him and just charge somebody? Or is he going to take his vehicle and try and clip somebody over like Bastille Day in France and kill 60-some people? Even though he's on rims, I'm not saying he can't get up and get moving. So, you know, this – now we're seeing like, hey, this is a lot more than we originally bargained for. This this thing has really escalated and ratcheted up quite a bit. And that was my concern. It was that it had come to a stop, and he was on rims, but that didn't stop him earlier from driving. And mm -hmm. I kept saying, like, what if he decides to put it in gear and punch it and just go straight through this field to get away? And now if he really has these explosives in the van, we got a vehicle-borne IED running around. Right. How far was the jack-in-the-box from where his resting place? It was pretty close, right? Yeah, 50 yards. 50 yards, max. Did everybody get evacuated out of there pretty quickly? Yeah, they. by the time I got there, like I said, it was getting late. Uh, by the time I got there, they had all those surrounding buildings uh, evacuated. It was late enough at night anyway that uh, I think the only people in the jack-in-the-box were probably employees cleaning up. Yeah. At that so, point, it was what, 1 o'clock in the yeah, morning, 1, 1 in the morning. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah they, they'd had everything – Really, the only folks that were around him were cops uh, okay. at that point. Uh, 
but even us, you know, the guys were were close. And if this turned out to be a true VBID, that's you know we were way well within the blast radius. Yeah. So can you describe that a little? You have background, obviously, out in, in Web has talked about your knowledge uh, of of explosives. Can you kind of go into that? What? Uh, sure. You know, your background I, on that. I had a standoff card in the APC. All the APCs did for you know different type of whether it be a backpack all the way up to semi bomb so you mean you had a card that explained the standoff you need to have for different amounts of explosives exactly right so but at the same time you're looking at okay if he's in armor how much energy is going to be absorbed by his armor and we're in armor so it's a little bit different than just open air because we do have some protection and he has the his vehicle that's going to absorb a lot of the energy as well so i sat there and i'm looking in my head trying to clean it up and i'm like i don't i think we're going to be good but if it's c4 it's it, we, we could have a big problem just because of the uh the dynamics of the uh components in it and it, it's going to get up the pressures a lot quicker a lot faster and uh and we could probably catch some frag from something like that it was thinking like Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah, that was ANFO. Still tremendously amount of energy. Um, he had, he, you know, what, 700, 800 pounds. Not that it wasn't out of the realm of possibility, but, you know, we really didn't know, honestly. There was no way to know. If it was ANFO, we were we were all in the, in the radius. But at the same time, we did have some protection. We were shielded, shielded, and I would say shielded in place, but we were shielded. The guys in the, like Keith, those guys, not so much. Oh, we're, we're screwed. Yeah. Just out in the open. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So you had that drama unfolding there with this new information, uh, but there was a second story going on at the same time that uh, back at DPD headquarters and Sergeant Wolverton here, he uh, he was there trying to clean up that mess. As we found is typical when you have a, an incident like this, there's usually the report that you have more than one person involved um, happens to be incorrect in most of our cases. However, there was information that there was a shooter at headquarters. So as I alluded to earlier, I asked my squad to respond to headquarters and told everybody else to go chase the car. And uh, as is typical when you're the new sergeant over in SWAT, uh, nobody really listens to you. So three of my guys showed up at headquarters, and the other six decided to go chase the car. Uh, so that was three guys that I had to clear headquarters with. Now, fortunately, the uh, the Metro squad was already at headquarters. Uh, they had responded and, and started clearing floors, and I think they got either the first and second or just the first. Uh, so I had Todd Stratman, Kelly White, and Ryan Scott with me, which Ryan Scott was newer than I was, uh, but way more skilled already. So they went and started clearing the third floor, fourth floor. Uh, we had a canine show up finally and helped us out with the fifth floor. Uh, but during that whole deal, um, the fire alarm was still going off, which compromised all of our communications back and forth. So we were trying to tell the lieutenant holding the scene at headquarters to let them know out of the van what was going on and, and trying to get information back from the van to tell us what was going on. Uh, and it just wasn't working. I had a uh, an old headset that didn't communicate very well. So anytime I actually wanted to speak to somebody, 
I had to walk out of headquarters, go all the way back out through the parking lot, which was right where the device was uh, nicely packaged up next to some cars. I must have walked by that thing three or four times, and every time I did, the EOD guys were just having an absolute fit. Yeah, uh, There were a lot of pleasantries ex- exchanged back and forth between me and them, and uh, I'd like to apologize formally <laughs> uh, and thank them for trying to save me, but I was going to be a victim of my own uh, stubbornness there. Uh, so yeah, everything was was kind of up in the air as far as what's going on out there, what's really going on here. You know, I've got three guys. There's more stairwells than than we could possibly handle. We had the metro guys holding the stairwells as best they could. Um, elevators, you know, everything was just a little bit overwhelming, especially for someone with my tenure and experience. Um, I was just trying to do the best I could to hold that part together. Searching for a shooter or an, another attacker. Yes, yeah, trying to, trying to find somebody else who might be wanting to to harm people right. inside of headquarters. Somehow gotten inside headquarters. Do do we get any information that there was someone else in headquarters? So, when he went in and they had him on video, they didn't ever tell us that he exited, and they didn't know how many people were actually involved. So we had a we had the ghost man. You know, nobody knew who he was or what he was doing. Um, Headquarters is full of cubicles and offices and, and, and it, locked doors. A lot of locked doors. Um, that <laughs> that could have got really expensive really fast if we started breaching all the doors. We decided to bypass locked doors, which didn't make a whole lot of sense in retrospect. But uh, we did a lot of things that didn't make a whole lot of sense <laughs> in, in the middle of, of trying to figure out what was going on with, with everything there. So um, having two different crime scenes, basically, and two different teams working them, I don't know that the communication between those two was going as well as we wanted it to, but we did have a live explosive device at headquarters. EOD was working that. We had a miniature SWAT team working inside of headquarters, <laughs> um, trying to trying to coordinate everything that was with that. And, and thank God for Todd Stratman and Kelly White because those two basically carried the load that entire day for everybody at headquarters as far as coordination and uh, telling me what needed to be done. Um, I'm eternally grateful for, for those two guys just in general, but in that situation for sure, they, they definitely saved the day for us. I'd like to uh, formally apologize to you for not showing up at headquarters, <laughs> but uh, you never called me either, so you never said come to headquarters, so I was listening to the radio. It's not accepted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, I want to describe that parking lot. So there was a, a duffel bag that, that Kent kept walking by, correct? So in that in that south parking lot, uh, there was 29 personal and city vehicles. Uh, the bag the and bomb located in the north middle parking lot, approximately in the third, in the third space, according to the uh, PES report. And Kent, so when bomb squad, they were there working at, at what point? They had that, they had this going on, this BP going on down in, in Hutchins, and and while you were there, when they were, what were they doing at that point? They try to move the bag, or what were they doing? I'm not real certain. Um, I think they they had come up with their own plan. Uh, again, the communication was was very limited uh, between the fire alarm going off and my headset just not working. I didn't get a whole lot of back and forth from them. Uh, but my understanding is the the device itself was attempted to be triggered a couple times um, and it didn't actually go off until we tried to move it. So once they, they picked it up and moved it, that's when the device went off and 
we were still inside of headquarters. I don't remember any sort of notification as far as, hey, it might be loud here in a second. <laughs> uh, you might want to get to the other side of the, <laughs> out of the building. Uh, none of that is, is memorable right now. Uh, you might have to talk to some of the guys who actually had their wits about him at that point. Did you, I mean, you heard it, though. Oh, yeah. No, heard it, felt it. Uh, it, it I mean, it was— What side of headquarters were you on? I think we were right about in the middle, uh, probably three or four floors up at that point, but the device was on the south side. Yeah, and, and that visitor parking area. I, I have it on pretty good authority that the car that it was right in front of, uh, you know, there's no assigned spots there, but somebody typically parked there, and that day somebody beat them to the office and actually took their parking spot. And uh, I, I don't know if that's karma or irony or, or mm. what the deal is there, but uh, yeah, it mangled up the, the front end of that car pretty well. Yep. Time-wise, when that bomb went off, y'all were still at that point on the BP. Yes. Correct? Okay. Correct. And, Jude, you were talking about, so can y'all, do y'all have any idea of why you were, he was trying to remote in and and and, and, uh, and activate that bomb? Do y'all know why what was causing uh, it to not, uh, it was to malfunction? Yes, I'd rather, okay. rather not say. Okay. But I will tell you that he was also trying to set it off when he was when the BP was going out down on Hutchins, and we know this because of uh, the work that the ATF guys did when they went back and they re re engineered everything out in California. Okay. So he was trying to do it the whole time. Uh, he just, I mean, the guy had potential. He was like a shade tree mechanic. He just made one little small mistake, and if he had done that, we're talking about the first time someone used a cellular device in the United States to set off a a bomb so we were extremely extremely lucky nobody how nobody got hit hurt injured on this operation i, I can never figure it out I, i'm just amazed by it the whole time when i think about it but uh, at that time i got on uh, my little flip phone and i called marine one and i said hey we got to take this vehicle out it's running we know he's got a capability we cannot let like danny said we cannot let him get out in the community even if he goes up and torches it off where these poor people are living in these shacks up here along the railroad tracks. We're liable for that. We can't let that happen. So I said, we got to take out the vehicle. Uh, and he said, hold on. He calls me back. He goes, hey, uh, the chief's in a press conference right now. Uh, we're going to talk to him and, you know, we'll get authorization. And I think about that time, the code, I, I don't know what time the code. So we already had the code. We got to disable this vehicle, and that was kind of like utmost on my mind at that time. Is we he, it's got to go out. So, about what time do you think was this call you made to Mark Vernon or Marine One? In the in like one one thirty or two, maybe. Probably somewhere along yeah. that timeline. We'd been there probably about an hour, hour and 15, 20 minutes, I think. Yeah, so he had he had called nine one one pretty early on, like almost right away, yes. and they had somehow connected him to our command post and so mark vernon our swat commander at the time and uh some of the negotiators were there specifically larry gordon and he got patched into larry gordon so larry starts having a conversation with him pretty quick and i think there's a lot of back and forth where suspects not wanting to give up too information too much information about himself but he is telling us he has explosives he is saying he's injured and I think he was kind of probing at Larry, like, hey, I need water. Hey, I need medical attention. You need to provide this to me. And I think Larry had said that. He had told him, like, oh, no, 
we're not going to come any closer to you. You need to come out and give yourself up. And then they'd be playing games with hanging up the phone on each other and calling back and arguing. So this has been going on for a while. And I, I will never forget when Mark Vernon came on the radio and told us a device went off at headquarters because that, that we knew everything just flipped and changed right yep. then. Like we're now in a different game. And I'm sure at the command post with the negotiators and the command staff, that game changed for them there too. Mm-hmm. And Jude, that's when never chief Brown, he was in a, in a press conference. And then, and then at, uh, I have here in my notes at one forty-five, the green light was given. Sounds about right. Um, when I was talking to Marine One, I was like, hey, uh, I really think I, I made a mistake on those EBR rounds. I said, is there any chance we can get anybody back to station and get them? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what kind of nut are you, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, he goes, why? And I said, well, they're specially around. And I had looked out over back in I-45, and I saw a couple state troopers. Right, kind of I knew where Keith was. The line of fire, probability, you know, small bullet, big sky, however you want to say it, was pretty small, but I knew we had these, and we had a respiratory pause, and Marine One got uh, Master P, Mark Paggy, to go back. Mark was in the equipment room with us, and he went back and got them, and then I felt like, man, Atlas, the way the world was off yeah. my shoulders, because I knew. It's not on you now. No, it's <laughs> not on me. I knew that everything was going to go pretty much more on script than, than and we cut down on a lot of liability at the time, in my opinion. So I knew this was going to be, you know, pretty big incident when it was over, and I didn't want us to look like, you know, we had made some kind of mistake. But uh, so I was much, much, and now I was on board. Now we're, now we're rolling. We can get some stuff done. So how many 50 cals did we have on the team? Two. And both were deployed that night. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we had the one you had, Keith. Correct. And then we had one on top of the bank on the passenger side. Yes. And that was Webb, right? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so green light was given. Can you all describe what we, we've talked about it before in previous episode uh, during the history and evolution of SWAT, what it means? Um, can you all talk about? what that again what that is and uh, what that means for y'all's role at that point for us uh specifically for the snipers typically when the when that authorization is given and that's what it is it's a more or less an extension of chapter nine for the penal code Uh, we are defending others that we may not know about Uh, we are given that authorization based on knowledge that the command post has that they either can't or won't put out over the radio. So it, it it's basically giving us the option if we choose, and we don't have to, it gives us that option if we choose that we can engage the suspect at any time that we see them, regardless of what they're doing, how they're doing, what whatever. Uh, and a good example that I, that I teach my students, uh, my sniper students, is if you're given that that green light, that authorization, and you're authorized to shoot this individual the first time you see him. Well, the first time the officer sees him or the sniper sees him, the guy may be walking out of the front door naked with his hands up. Well, unbeknownst to the sniper, he just told the command post, yeah, I'm going to walk out naked, I'm going to wave at the world, say goodbye, I'm going to turn around, back inside, close the door, and I'm going to kill my family. Well, all that information is either too much or you can't, put all that on radio quick enough that all that can be 
surmise with, you're given the green light, make this happen. And again, it's still on the operator or the, or the shooter to decide, yes, I'm going to, or no, I'm not. That's, that's still their decision, but it now extends that chapter nine from the command post. Yes, we have information that you don't know about yet. This needs to happen as soon as possible. So that for us, that's that's what that code means, what that authorization is for. So in this situation, he could have easily been walking out with a some sort of vest. Absolutely. That, okay. Yes. Yeah. We he could have been the the fact that the the charge went off at the at headquarters. Now, like I said, everything changed. Our focus is heightened to a razor's edge. Now, this guy can walk out with a vest bomb. Well, the guy can can detonate the truck, you know, because he, all right, he's, he's given up, you know, he's, he's quit, but he's going to take as many of us with, and not knowing what he had in that vehicle could have been 10 pounds. It could have been a thousand pounds. That truck was big enough that it would carry that much. Well, there was also other information that, uh, I believe, I, I believe I read it that Northeast substation, there was, uh, there was an additional, uh, uh, bomb placed out there it ended up being false information but right. i think that it was that was what was given out at the time where right. there's one there's always two where there's two there's three and so i mean when the first one went off the ideas and like oh wow that went off it was like how many more of these are out there yeah this guy's prepared he shows up with a with an armored vehicle yep and attacks the front of headquarters and and it is not uncommon to have multiple actors in different ways of waves of attack and, and, and this guy was he had a plan he uh he clearly put a lot of time and thought into this uh in, in preparation so green light was given and then y'all's roles changed okay and i'm seeing here uh at 150 after the green he hung up the phone and air one and uh, DPS were were notified to fly. They needed to fly higher. At this point, what did y'all believe the suspect was trying to do? Did uh, y'all believe he was trying to remote into other, potentially to remote into some other bombs that he may have placed? To me, that's always been the million dollar question. Why did he go down I forty five? Did he have another area set up where he would have had access to a lot more energetics, weapon systems, or who knows, you know, traps, whatever, ambush points. Why did he go that way? I mean, we'll never know. But uh, that that was, uh, you know, in the thought process of what are we going to do? What would we have done if at that DSO sheriff deputy hadn't spiked his tires? Where was this going to take us down what road? And it could have been a lot worse. Uh, she did us a tremendous favor. Because that slowed it down quite a bit, and we went from a very dynamic, still very dangerous situation, but one where we we were controlling the timeline. Now, when he was moving, he's controlling the timeline. It makes it much more difficult. And he could have led y'all. He was he possibly could have led y'all into another ambush. Exactly, drawing y'all into mm-hmm. it. Okay. And as far as the level of threat, uh, you said it's an extension of Chapter Nine. That that's the highest level of threat. Yes. Yeah, that that's point. that's using deadly force to protect yourself or someone else. So for us, that is the ultimate authorization. It's it, it and that comes from higher. the top. Correct. That comes from correct from our chief. Yeah, thirty three years. I've seen it given maybe five six times. Okay, that's it's very rarely given, but it's when it is, 
it's extraordinary confrontational situations that we're dealing with before they would even think about letting you have that option. Yeah, because there's a lot there's a lot of weight that goes with that with that decision yeah, from absolutely. the top. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and y'all were just basically at this point concerned with further destruction. Yes, if you already had one bomb go off, and you know this guy has already done his damage at headquarters, and he is barricaded inside this armored vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the the threat was there for further destruction. Yeah, going on a worst case scenario. That's how much can he pack in that vehicle, and how big of a hole in the world can he make? Yeah, going talking about that as far as concern. You know, Judy touched on with blast radius. I mean, what kind of y'all at the scene? What what was going around at that point? Like, as far as, like, okay, how close are we, and is this good enough? And I know, Keith, you were kind of, your ass was out in the wind, but how did that look from y'all? Would y'all go go into that a little bit more? For the blast radius, we, again, knowing a little bit about explosives, not as much as Jude, but knowing a little bit enough to be dangerous. uh, If we worked worst-case scenario that this thing was packed, where myself and, and Clubber and the rest of the guys that I wound up eventually staying at, uh, we were within 70 yards of the of the truck. That's well inside not only the fragmentation, but also the blast radius for the overpressure. So the, the shock wave would have hit us. Whatever frag for the vehicle would have come off, we, we were done. We, we were probably not going to survive. Uh, and again, that's based on worst case scenario. Uh, but it was the only place that we could get to have effective view on the vehicle. So what we did initially for myself and Mark is we took turns on the gun. Uh, one guy on the gun, the other guy staying behind the, the, the building as best they could. Uh, we would rotate out every couple of minutes just to give a break to each other. But knowing that if this vehicle does wind up going off, we're going to, we're in trouble. It's, you know, like I says, we're, we're well within that hundred yard of lethal radius of the frag. And then, the, the shockwave coming through would have probably leveled most of the buildings. And Keith, at that point, how how much training did you have with the 50 cal? Have you been training? Since its inception, yeah, since okay. the beginning. Okay. Uh, I'm reading the timeline here. Uh, 145 green light was given, and then there was further dialogue with with uh, Danny mentioned Larry Gordon. He was the, he was the negotiator on scene, correct? Yes, yep. Um, I'm looking here at 2.15. He's hung up the phone uh, saying he will start shooting in five minutes. Uh, he basically started giving information about his son uh, and about his own age, and he hung up the phone. There was a lot of back and forth, correct? I forgot about that. And I, like every 10 minutes he said, I'm coming out in five minutes, and we're going to get it on essentially. So, you know, that would be put out over the radio, and the team would just be waiting, and then it just would never happen. It would just kind of keep saying things, making threats and hanging up and then coming back on. It's that roller coaster we were on, you know. So it's every time he, we would get intel from the radio from Larry, we're like, okay, here we go. And then nothing. And then he'd kind of lull back down, then make another phone call and back up again. Talking about your adrenaline spiking up. Yeah. And back and forth. I mean, it really, over time, it does take the starch out of you, you know, so many adrenaline dumps, you know. Yeah, up and down and up mm-hmm. and down, the unknown. And then, yep. yeah, I can't imagine. And then, and then you had this going on. Then you had poor Sergeant Wolverton and the team at, at headquarters <laughs> dealing with what they had to deal with. He's not only deaf and he's tired now. <laughs> he's deaf. He's tired, you know, and and he's he apparently is short-handed because all his team uh, went another he ran direction. Ran off and left him. <laughs> yeah. 
we, we call that abandoning. Yeah. yeah. Is the statute of limitation for abandonment charges? Are we still. I think it's expired. He's good. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah it's beyond that. <laughs> um, so at two forty three, I'm seeing here he he's been the suspect actually phones back and 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 notifies Larry that he's been shot three times, uh, and he's you know he's bleeding and he knows he's going to die soon. That's according to the uh, the notes from the phone call. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, he hasn't really come out and said his full name. I don't believe. Uh, at, at, I'm, I'm reading here, and he he did come out at 255 and s- says his name is James, and then he is shot all over, and he's bleeding out. He hangs up, and then he starts asking for for water. And he believed that it could be an indication that he was possibly shot in the, uh, in the gut, gut mm-hmm. shot. Yep. Okay. Um, this kind of looks, seems like it went back, back and forth. Um, uh, but I'm looking at, at command post got a call at 4 a.m. Uh, a lieutenant and Mesquite advised that there's a possible suspect in their city. Did y'all, y'all know about that? We heard, we heard words that, you know, like says there's Intel dumps coming on, on the radio a lot. So we're hearing possible devices at other substations, you know, now there's, other incidents going on around the around the metroplex i'm like mm, okay so we're we're kind of taking all this in with as much as we can but you know half of what we're we're focusing on is literally right in front of us yeah we don't even care about kent wolverton headquarters at this point <laughs> yeah i mean he's, we're, we're he's just pretty much on his own yeah but in any of these incidents fusion center gets spun up and of course they're just blanketing everything and pulling out everything in case it could be related and we need that info so and all these incidents, we always get a trickle of information that we have to take with a grain of salt and apply it where we need. So, Kit, uh, this is this is closing in on 4 a.m. You already had one bomb go off up there. Uh, and what kind of how how did that look for you at that point? If you can remember what you what you what you were doing after you, how long did it take to clear that HQ? Forever. Um, it it really felt like we were just constantly trying to, to maneuver through headquarters and, and make sure that we didn't miss spots, um, account for everybody that was supposed to be in there. Um, but the, the biggest deal was we knew that they had something going on over on their side. So, uh, that part was frustrating to be stuck at headquarters, knowing that at that point we didn't have anything. Um, but the people that you work with every day are still out in another situation and, Everybody there was was willing to jump in the truck and, and head down, but we were told, "Hey, go ahead and stand by, and just in case something else pops off somewhere else." So, um, I, the one thing I remember is the the Red Cross guys showed up with the food truck, and uh, and we grabbed a couple, you know, expired little Debbie snacks from there, and <laughs> and just kind of waited until we got the word. Back at the scene, Hutchins, did y'all get any of those um, those ninety nine cent tacos? Um, Jack in a box. Uh, they, were those offered at all? No, well, skipping ahead. No, <laughs> no, we did not. But skipping ahead, so many hours later, Nick and Sam's actually brought catered food out. Really? Yeah, I remember kind of sitting there uh, waiting for an evac, and by then Dallas had woken up the next morning and saw the news, and it was still ongoing. And Nick and Sam's delivered food out there to us while we were still doing with the post incident. Shout out Nick and Sam's. They're very good to us. And they look, and Kent, Kent knows them very well. Uh, it, yeah, that's, it's a, it's a local restaurant here and, and they're very good to the, uh, to our Dallas officers. Yep. 
so there's a lot of phone going back and forth volleys going back between Larry and the suspect at this point. Um, and I'm looking here at four thirty. There, there was a, a shot to take out the engine. How, how did that go? And uh, Keith, was that you? Yes, sir. Okay, can you describe that? Um, after I got my my hide sight, my uh, position on top of the roof. Okay, that's where I wound up staying the whole time. Uh, I actually had Scott McDonald was kind of my anchor, because the the roof was a piece of garbage. Uh, the whole building pretty much was. Uh, if we moved too much, it was pretty much going to cave in on itself. <laughs> uh, but the shingles were all deteriorating, so it was it was like trying to stand on ice. Uh, so I I had Scott lay basically hanging onto my my feet, keeping me from sliding down the roof. Uh, the big issue that we had was there was only one magazine for the rifle. I had the AP rounds in the in the V or in the in the rifle. Eventually, uh, Mark Paggy retrieved the the arf rounds the 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 compressed copper rounds and we kind of worked out a tag team between myself and clubber mark wanted to try the 308 through the wind through the the radiator to see if that would to shut it off we knew it was probably a low probability but wanted to try it anyway so once the authorization was to to kill the engine uh make the vehicle stop running to make it more uncomfortable for him uh, we worked out again because there's only one magazine for this and it's a magazine fed rifle i loaded it up kind of staggering the rounds i had the armor piercing with the intention that if i saw the suspect i was going to engage him through the windshield or wherever he was and i wanted to do that with an ap round to go through the armored vehicle the next subsequent rounds three more after that were the anti-ricochet rounds the the compressed copper rounds. And then the bottom rounds after that were all AP rounds. So working out the mechanics in my head, I says, all right. So I, I communicated with clubber. I says, you engage the three rounds. Once you're done, I'm going to watch, see if I get any response from inside the cab. Uh, if I don't, I'll rack that one AP round out and that'll give me the next three rounds will be the, the rounds that I will shoot through the, hood with the intention of killing the engine with the 50 at that point so that worked out uh i got it set gave club the the thumbs up said i'm ready on you so he sent the three rounds which again didn't do anything i mean it didn't even make the truck hiccup uh i got zero reaction from inside i waited for a short minute uh maybe a minute and a half nothing so i told scott he says all right i'm gonna start taking the engine now so when you said you see nothing, how much could you see into that van? Because you were positioned where you could see through the front windshield. Yes. Yeah. And obviously it's at night, and there might be some street lights, and that might cause glare. But what was the depth you think you could see into the van? At that point, uh, looking from an elevated position, I could only see basically into the seats. I couldn't see anything into the back of the cab. And I had a. Uh, it turns out I had a really good line of sight. Uh, from my elevated position, but because of the shadows of the streetlights and then the backlighting of everything else, the the depth of penetration into the vehicle for vision was, at best, the front seats. I couldn't see anything into the cab. And you said you were about 70 yards out? Uh, I was actually at 50 right on the button, right in, right in or right on the roof line. Uh, Clubber was still at the 70, 72 yards, somewhere in there. Uh, but after Mark shot the, shot the radiator, uh, trying to shut it off, 
nothing. Did like I said, didn't even hiccup. Uh, I cleared the AP round out, and I told Scotty, he says, "Hang on, we're gonna we'll shoot the engine now." Uh, let the command post know. He says, "All right, rounds out." So I put three rounds into the hood, uh, trying to spread it out. Uh, the whole point of using the anti-ricochet rounds, based on my angle, if I had a shot the AP rounds, I knew where the APC was on the, the driver's side. My concern was if one of the AP rounds, which is a, a penetrator round, if that goes through the hood and catches a weird angle on the engine, it can go through the fender and still have enough steam coming out to possibly hurt one of my guys on the other side of the parking lot. I don't want to take that chance. So that's when the the ARF rounds were, the anti-ricochet rounds were, were the perfect choice. Basically going through the hood, I knew it would penetrate the hood, even if it was lightly armored, It would, but it would... It's designed to basically rip apart everything on the on the hood or the the top of the engine. So all the lifeblood of the engine, the electronics, the fuel rails, uh, the air breathers, everything that runs the engines on top. Well, those ARF rounds are going to just decimate it. So after the first round, and oh, caveat to all this, because I grabbed my assault gear and not my sniper gear, I had a single coil ear in my left ear for my radio. I didn't have anything in my right. Normally, I carry a set of foamy ears in my gear. This was my rapid assault gear. It wasn't my heavy siege armor. So my right ear was naked. So I told Scott, after this first round, if you need me for anything to either stop shooting or you see something that I don't, don't yell at me because I won't hear you. You got to grab my leg and get my attention because I'm going to be deaf. And he's like, okay, can I like do anything i says nope just hang on so i knew after that first round i was going to be hurting for hearing uh, i've shot the 50 enough thousands of rounds through those guns they're easy to shoot the one drawback is they are louder than hell they will rock you yes they will the, not the, just the sound but the, 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 the energy the <laughs> baffle the baffles are designed to take about 60 to 70 percent of the recoil away from the gun so the shooter can actually shoot the gun without breaking a shoulder all that sound is directed back to the shooter. That's the drawback. Uh, it's kind of a thumpy gun to shoot. Uh, it's not uncomfortable, uh, but it, it does have a pretty sizable push when the gun goes off. So, again, I told Scott, he says, you need me, grab my calf, let me know. Other than that, I'm not going to hear shit. So he, uh, he says, all right, on you. So set the first round off, and he said after that first round, the engine started to scream. Well, of course, I can't hear it at this point. So I'm like, okay, I got two more rounds in this gun, so I might as well clean them up and go right back to the, the AP rounds. So I spread it out as best I could, keeping it to where I thought the engine was going to be, knowing a little bit of the layout of the vehicle. Uh, so I put the, the three rounds in kind of a weird pattern on the hood. And he says, after that second round, the engine pretty much stopped, and I, I just pumped the third round into it just, just to finish it off. He says, but after that second round, it was pretty much the coup de grace to, to finish the engine off. It screamed and made a, a last wail, and it was done. It shut itself off. A tiny white flag came out from underneath the hood and started yes. waving. Yes, please stop shooting me. Yes. yes. Yeah. The, uh, it didn't last long. Okay. So was Larry on the, on the phone at that point with the, with the suspect? Do you know? I, I don't know if he was on the phone at the time that I did the shooting. Okay. Uh, shooting the engine. Uh, but I believe he either called or he called back 
directly after, because he, he made a comment to Larry, he says, uh, you just killed my engine or something to that nature. And, well, that's the point. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, and he also said something to the fact of, oh, why are you idiots shooting at me? You know I got explosives in here. So that was the thing. But I, would, I want to go back a track just a second. Yeah, please do. I, I want to say kudos to Keith for not only making the sniper cocktail. But I mean, you talk about his situation awareness when he's describing that. I mean, that is that is some fine, fine work that he did there, and uh, I'm very proud of it. He was trained well. Yeah, I can't say that, but he he represented real well in this one. Well, I was thinking about that. He, that is that is he came up with that plan on the fly to yep. to stagger those rounds. Or just even being aware, like, hey, I'm going to be deaf, so get my attention. Mm-hmm. Like, let me know if there's some kind of reaction from the van or this shooter, and you have to get my attention by physically getting a hold of me. That's not just something Keith made up on the fly either, though. That's something Keith has thought about for probably 15 years. I, I promise you. The, the SWAT guys get a bad reputation of guys that just work out uh, and break stuff, but they're very, very meticulous. They think about all of these situations constantly. It's literally a conversation in the APC on the way anywhere is how you're going to defeat whatever. And we, I randomly just come up to the, the office still and ask them random questions about, hey, how would you do this? And within 15 minutes, they've got like three different solutions that are all viable and probably 15 that aren't. But that's that's the way their mind works. And they're really it's unknown how how much they actually discuss the things that they do and how much thought they put into the things that they do and their their level of knowledge of everything that goes into what they do so like even the the van like he's saying i, I kind of had an understanding of the the layout of the the engine yeah i mean he, he probably googled it and looked at you know well this van looks to be about a 96 or 95 uh let's look at what the engine layout looks like and I promise you, those guys are not just a bunch of meatheads that like to break stuff. All right, we're continuing down this timeline. Um, you took out the engine, and we're creeping up on 5 a.m. Yep. 5.03, this time you're you're on the windshield. You're looking for an opportunity. Green light's been given. Can you kind of just walk us through? at 503 what you saw and what you did sure um after taking the engine out uh, obviously the next round coming through the the magazine was the ap round with the intention that if i had to engage him i, I could uh, so staying on the glass the whole time constantly in and out of the focus or in and out of the uh the power setting so i could scrutinize the truck as best i could obviously the light's starting to come into effect for us um uh, so I'm starting to think all that sniper stuff of I'm on a roof line, I'm silhouetted, the sun's coming up, he's going to be looking right into my face, everything's going to be reflecting off my glass, but the sun coming up out of the east, it's just, it's, nothing's good from my side of it. So constantly adjusting the power, trying to look at every little part of the truck, running through that mental game of what did I see, is that the same thing I saw last time, did anything change inside, and about that time, I don't remember how many minutes it was after the last round I shot that I caught movement out of the corner of the glass, well, the edge of the, the window. Uh, and the way the layout was, both windshields, there were two. Instead of one solid windshield, there was a split in the middle. So you had the driver's side windshield and the passenger side windshield. My perspective is I was looking through the passenger side window, uh, front windshield. I caught movement at the bottom as I'm looking at it, the bottom left, so almost like the passenger seat. Just a real quick flash. I'm like, what the hell was that? 
course, I'm saying that to myself. I'm probably saying it out loud, but I'm saying it to myself. So I immediately switch my focus over and I'm looking at that. And that's when I caught just a, just a little, I call it the whack-a-mole. It's that little, little flash of a, the top of his head is what it turned out to be. At the time, I didn't know what it was because it was just happening so fast. First flash caught my eye. I swung over to it. Work on the power. I saw it again. It was a little higher this time. I'm like, is that him? What the hell is that? I, I, of course, my eyes are starting to play tricks on me because I've been on the glass for the last four and a half hours. So constantly looking through a magnified optic with one eye and nothing with the other eye, your mind starts playing little games with you. Kind of crushing headache because I can't focus. But like he says, I saw that first first movement, focused in on it. Second movement, I'm like, damn, I think that's him. And about that time I got the, the magnification set up, sure enough, his whole face came straight up over the, the dashboard looking out the window, and then he was gone again. It was just a half a heartbeat. It was just a flash. And I, it, was, it was enough that I saw him. I saw his face for the first time. And I was upset with myself because I had lost that opportunity. It's the first time I'd seen him all night. The green light was out there. It was already authorized. I had the opportunity, and I missed it. And I was cussing myself left and right. I'm yelling at myself. Scotty's like, dude, calm down. Relax. It's not over yet. Just stay there. So he was kind of my calming force in the background, just keeping me me focused. Once I got uh, established, and I said, okay, this is my last place I saw him. So I, I cranked up the power just a little bit more, and I put my, my crosshairs on that section. So if I saw him again, I was going to take the shot. This is probably five o'clock on the button. So it, it's not long in real minutes, but it was an eternity in my mind. So maybe a minute or two go by and I start seeing more movement, but it's deeper into the truck. Again, now the light's starting to come up. We're getting just a little bit of ambient light, not much, but I, I picked up movement deeper behind the driver's seat which I had not seen at all the whole time I was up on the roof. Started to scrutinize that a little bit more. And as I powered up, I'm like, oh my God, that's him. I'm looking at his whole upper half of a silhouette. So basically I could see him from about hip up to the top of his head. And the way he was positioned, uh, he was on the bench seat behind the driver's side. Unbeknownst to me, there was a partition behind the driver's seat. It was a steel wall that goes about halfway up the driver's seat height-wise. And then from that point on, it was that real thick, heavy, corrugated mesh. Uh, almost like a decorative like weave, basket weave, almost. Uh, but that was the partition that I, I was actually looking partially through that. I never saw it. Because it was still dark enough. So you're still in the dark. You're looking through darkness and different photonic barriers through the front windshield and then through the corrugated mesh. Yes. Damn. <laughs> yes. So, again, not not knowing what I wasn't looking at, I could see him. And I, I had enough mental history of the truck at this point that any movement in inside I knew wasn't normal. It wasn't what I'd seen before. And, again... Going back to my sniper training, that's part of those those Kim's games that we we teach each other. 
It's keeping memory sniper or keeping memory stupid. It's it's a memory game that you don't have time to write everything down, but you do have time to remember it and look at it. And you can scrutinize it in the back of your mind. So when I picked up that movement in deep in the truck, I'm like, that's him. That it can't be anything else, but it's him. And turns out the movement that I saw was actually his arm. He was he was bladed slightly away from the windshield. He was looking out the driver's side porthole window behind the driver's seat. So he was almost like a 45 degree angle to me. So I was looking at his head, his right shoulder through that window, through the passenger window. Once I figured out, all right, that's him. I know it's him. I've got him in the sights. I can see him literally from the top of his head to his hip. And shoulder to shoulder with kind of a, a weird bladed angle. And that's when I told Scotty, I said, stand by. Well, to me, I sounded all cool, calm, and collected in my head. That's not what I sounded like in reality. Scotty was like, you sounded like a three-year-old schoolgirl the first time you said that. I was slightly excited, <laughs> knowing what I was about to get ready to do. I said it again because I was still figuring out where I wanted to place my shot. And while I'm running all this through my head at Mach 2, the two primary instructors that, that ring true in my head were my first sniper instructors. And no, it wasn't Jude yet. But Jude was my teammate at that point. Tony Black and Bob Newton were my two primary first sniper instructors. And the one thing they always harped on was, don't be greedy. Quarter up your target shoot center of mass whatever it is that you can see shoot center of mass don't get greedy and take that perfect sniper shot for the head that sexy movie shot yeah the sexy movie stuff which is bullshit it doesn't work all right too many things can go wrong take your time make your shot count but take the biggest piece that you can see which happens to be his chest thank god i did I quartered him up, and my crosshairs actually wound up falling just below his nipple line on his chest. So it, it squared up everything that I could see. And I told Scotty, stand by. Well, that last standby, Scott knew I was serious because he said my voice dropped about four octaves. It was nice and calm and relaxed. Took the safety off, did my breathing, sent the round. I don't remember the gun going off. I don't remember the recoil. I don't remember any of it. I remember the, watching it, watching the glass explode, watching everything through the scope. Get that little white blast from where the glass detonated in the hole. And I'm like, oh, crap, I lost sight of him. So I, I shift my crosshairs and my gaze over. I can't see him anymore. Wait a minute, why can't I see him? He should be sitting right there. So then I start to panic. Fuck, I missed. How the hell did I miss? I couldn't have missed. He's right there. He's he's 50 yards away from me. And I start, again, I start the, the second guessing. The, what the hell did I do wrong? And I'm I'm saying this to myself, but I'm actually saying it out loud. Out loud. And Scotty's right behind me. And he grabs me by the calf. He said, calm down. You're not done yet. Okay. All right. And I'm still, I'm like, I, he's not there. He's he, he was, he's not there anymore. He goes, did you do everything right? Uh, yeah. 
Was he in your crosshairs when you pressed the trigger? Yeah. Did you jerk the trigger? No. Then you did everything right. Right. Then you hit him. But I don't see him. And there was a disconnect in my head that I forgot the power of that gun. It's not a normal sniper rifle. It's designed as an anti-material rifle. But it's super powerful. It will relocate whatever you were shooting at. And that's what it did. Turns out, my point of aim was not my point of impact. Where I aimed, I actually hit him 18 inches high because it went through the glass. So I knew there was going to be some some deflection from the glass. We've shot enough of that. I didn't take into effect or into account any other barriers between the glass and him. I just thought it was open air. Well, it turns out the round, when it goes through, it strips off the copper jacket and the, co- the, the tungsten penetrator continues on and does the damage. Well, that went through that second barrier, and when it did, it deflected it even higher. So the round that actually, where I was aiming, here, actually hit him here. Which you're pointing straight so, into so the it, cranial. It, it, hit him, it hit him just below his eye, as best we can. So you were aiming... Yeah, I was aiming just just around his mid chest line, just below his nipple, below the nipple line, and he ended up. And the impact was approximately eighteen inches high, so centered it hit, in the cranial. It, it it hit him just just somewhere in the in the in the head. If I'd have been aiming at his head, I would have missed. So again, that's that goes back to my initial schooling of of my first sniper. Don't be greedy. Quartered up, shoot center mass. If you have to, you can always shoot again, but. Don't get greedy. And for whatever the reason, that stuck in my head. When I'm I'm working through all that math in my skull, angle of the glass, the deflection of the round, where I can expect it to go if I can at all, uh, the round that I'm shooting, you know, the 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 gun, the the positioning, my breathing, all that fun stuff that you you teach these young snipers, all that was finally running through my head, and it it did it, you know, in literally a flash of a second, but it's still. It was a individual step that I was thinking about. Slack, what uh, degree angle do you think you were at? Four or five percent? From the roof line? Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Nothing. Four or five percent. Okay. So when that round, when it went through that 13 sixteenths, it got off its center axis and started to yaw. And it tumbled like a Chinese dart. And the reason we know that is because afterwards on the mesh, the the steel, the, I'm sorry, the tungsten penetrator was on a vertical position with the tip of the tungsten at 12 o'clock. So, have any doubts about why you would need a 50 or there's another another weapon system in the inventory that could accomplish the mission like that did. So that was a validation after, you know, 12 years of fighting for it. Yeah, fighting for it and trying to get it and validate it. Because I don't know how many commanders I had told us you guys will never use that in the city of Dallas as long as I'm sitting in this chair, you know. So, you know, those kind of battles. But it's all in the preparation. It's kind of like how you prepare the seabed for planning. We did a lot of testing. We knew what the capabilities were. We had the right ammunition for the right deal. And we had the right person behind the gun, which is probably the most important thing. It's rather, it's better to have and not need. Exactly. Right. Threat neutralized. I want to talk about the significance of using that weapons platform in in law enforcement in the history. Is that is that is the first time that 
as far as we're aware, that is the first time that that weapon system was used by a, a law enforcement sniper or a law enforcement Still personnel. Still is only the first time. It hasn't happened. So there have been other teams across the country that have used the 50 cal, but it has been for its original intent, which is anti-material, so taking out vehicles. I think the last one that I'm aware of was in Ohio. Uh, a SWAT sergeant took out a tractor trailer. Uh, I believe it was stolen. It had been running through town, raising all kind of hell. So they used that couple rounds, defeated the engine, and chase was over. So after you accomplished that mission, then you had to take the steps to make sure that, you know, 100% that it was done. And right. then also there was no more threats. Right. How did that, what happened next after that? Uh, after the, after the initial shooting um, and figured out that, okay, yeah, I, I probably did hit him. We still hadn't confirmed it yet. Uh, at that point, uh, I think they tried calling back several times. And, Getting the voicemail. Yeah, they kept going to voicemail. Um, there was no reaction from inside the vehicle. Uh, bear in mind, up to that point, we never saw any movement. There was no the truck wasn't moving, even though the guy was talking to Larry. Uh, I never saw the truck rock back and forth. Uh, never saw any kind of ambient light or anything inside. So wherever he was, and I'm, I'm guessing he was probably on the floor most of the time, or crawling around in the back of the cab, well out of our line of sight. Uh, using the shadows to his advantage. Up to that point, the truck never moved. Uh, we never saw anything uh, until that, that one little incident with the, the whack-a-mole and then the, the movement in the back. After that, we clearly didn't see anything. Well, the sun was now coming up pretty good. Um, at that point, uh, Webb was up on top of the bank, and the CP's asking, does he see anything? And he was made. He made a comment uh, about there's something on the windows. Uh, again, still too dark, uh, but the windows seem off. It turns out it, uh, we believe it was a blood splatter uh, from the inside. So clearly, I hit him. Uh, but again, without being able to see him, there was no confirmation at that point. So we stayed on the glass, uh, both of us, Webb and I, uh, just to confirm uh, until the sun truly came back up. And we could send in robots and actually have go a good look. Uh, did we try a helicopter flying by with yeah, lights? Yeah, I see yes, here at did uh, the uh, yeah. DPS. DPS. Right. So we tried lighting it up a little bit. Uh, still nothing. Uh, they tried the thermals, the, the FLIR. Uh, couldn't get anything, any read inside. So until the sun truly came up, we all stayed in place and, and didn't move. And I'm reading here that the at 5.40 a.m., you know, uh, 40 minutes after you took the shot that a robot approached the, the vehicle yes. and it, it observed the suspect inside the vehicle and it says in fetal position. Right. And was that Jeremy driving the, uh, the robot or was that uh, someone else's robot who had come out? That was a little Andros 200 Okay. that we had that the ATF let us borrow. borrow. Yeah. Johnny Five. Yeah. Johnny Five uh Jack Robowski and those guys are Jack's former DPD was super guy always uh, couldn't do enough to help us out. Yeah, I, I remember Jeremy driving it. I believe it could have been Jeremy. I, I have it. I thought it was you. I, I don't. I yeah, initially I started putting it together, okay. and uh, I think I actually I got a video of Jeremy driving it, perhaps, okay. and you in the back of the APC stringing some explosives together right. to do something else later. Mm -hmm. The robot kind of verifies, you know, the, the missions. That that mission's accomplished. Now you have to, you still have a threat of the vehicle and, and potential 
you know, additional bombs. So how, what, what happened after that, as far as like how y'all handled that vehicle, knowing that the, that he was neutralized? Yeah. I remember, uh, I got my old buddy Marine one back on the, um, on my flip phone and uh, I said, Hey boss. So yeah, just so people know you're throwing this out. It's even thrown off guests. So Jude has this thing of uh, coming up with his own nicknames for everyone. So if you've heard Slacker, Slacker, he's talking about Keith, who's sitting right next to him. But Marine One is not a command center. Marine One is a former SWAT lieutenant who was in the Marines. So Marine One, yeah. carry on. So I told Marine One, I said, look, why don't we take the robot and we can knock out one of these rear windows and we kind of get a little foothold in there. We're not going to penetrate. That's We're not running or anything safe. That's bomb squad. We just want to put a window in there so we can put some kind of uh, maybe electronics or something. This, we didn't have drones at this time or anything like that. And he's like, uh, no, we're going to wait on uh, Bomb Squad. And they were finishing up downtown at this time. And also at the time, we're getting more and more help to the scene from the federal guys and also some of the local bomb squads in the area, like DFW, I think Mesquite, Arlington. Some of the other guys are coming in with all their equipment because I believe our one of our robots was damaged downtown when the device went off. So we're still kind of waiting. Uh, I'm not sure quite on a timeline, maybe seven or so before our uh, EOD actually gets on the scene. So once EOD got on the scene, so did they totally take over the the van at that point? Right. They... they they are taking care of it. We talked about, I did talk to, uh, the, you know, the bomb squad commander, a couple of things that we, we kind of fill them in what we knew at the time that we thought was pertinent. And then we talked about, you know, what, what, what they could, what they could do. Um, there was a orange bucket in the, like the right front seat that had some, I would call them like precursors, smokeless powder, other stuff in there. And they wanted to, you know, get at that pretty quick. So I remember uh, Little Wayne actually made a charge to take out the side window. And uh, we had a couple events that happened before that. But once he took out the window, that kind of got the ball rolling as far as uh, the render safe on the vehicle. FBI SWAT showed up at some point during this? Uh, The head of the uh, bomb squads in uh, Metroplex is run by basically by the FBI, and uh, the head guy got there. And uh, I think old Tom had been at his dear lease, and he got there and uh, he decided, uh, you know, where we're going to, what we were going to do. And, uh, you know, it continued on with uh, trying to breach the vehicle to get inside there. All the houses on uh, Palestine Street were, were cleared out at this point. Yes, sir. Um, so I, I've actually seen the video of the – the detonation. Can you kind of talk about that, which y'all know of it, of how that came about, or what you can talk about? Sure. Uh, so, is uh, I think before that, we actually had uh, our old buddy Webb got to do a little trigger work on the front windshield. Uh, they wanted to get the uh, see if we can get one of the claws on like an Andro six up there if they could pull one of the windshields out, and so we did a little. Did a little bit of uh, work along the edge uh, on the glass. I think uh, Webb core shot probably seven rounds. And I'll never forget, I had to go across the uh, 
where the command post is set up, and Chief Cato's there and Marine One's there. So I'm like the flunky going in between. There were some concerns about uh, RFE energy in the area, not knowing. So I was like a little runner. I went over there and I said, sir, uh, requesting that we shoot the 50 to uh, disable uh, the glass. And they both looked at me like I just landed from Mars, like what kind of baloney are you, you throwing out here? <laughs> And finally, we talked about it, and they said, oh, all right, go ahead. So we went up there, and we, we accomplished that. And then uh, in progression of uh, stripping the van down, by this time, I look around, man, all my Confederates are gone. I'm like, what the hell? Where's all the SWAT cats? This is when Daniel's talking about the Sam. Nick and Sam's yeah, on service road. <laughs> they're up there. Taking our gear off. And I'm like, son of a gun, why is the old man out here walking around doing all this? You know, so. <laughs> We're going on, and then I see Tom from the FBI. He's He's got uh, some M112 blocks laid out. And I'm like, hey, Tom, what's what's uh, the intent? And he tells me what we're going to do. I said, okay. So now I got M112 go, blocks being what? Uh, each one's a one and a quarter pound of uh, composition C4, high explosive, military-grade explosive. So I, I get the, the gist of what Tom wants. I got to go back over, and I— I'm trying not to laugh, but I see Marine One and Cato, and they're like, oh, man, it was this clown what this time, you know. Requesting to blow up the van, sir. <laughs> yeah, so I tell, I tell Marine One, I said, sir, uh, per FBI authority, uh, they're requesting uh, a couple M112 blocks. I could just see Jude raising his hand and saying, hey, uh, uh, I, I hereby solemnly swear to be an FBI agent for the next 15 minutes so I can get this done. <laughs> <laughs> well, the backstory was, you know, Marine One had been in the uh, engineers, and he did a lot of uh, work in Iraq with, uh, like, 82 Russian millimeter mortars, you know, blowing up 50, 100 blocks at a time. And he used to always tease me and say, you'll never use one in the city of Dallas in your career. So I was over there like the Cheshire Cat, smiling, because now we get a chance to play with two of them. And uh, I think they were just like, this guy is just out of control. So they just said, yeah, go ahead. So I went back there, and then they set it up, and uh, <clears throat> they set off two and a half pounds, and I was I was uh, pretty impressed with the uh, durability of that Ford van because uh, <laughs> it pushed in the sheet metal a couple inches, but it really didn't do a whole lot of that. But I didn't really quite understand what what Tom had, what his initial intent was. There was a little dis- discrepancy there, but after that. Uh, I don't know, timeline is probably around 10 o'clock. And I remember going back, walking up a few hundred yards to all all my boys are, and Slack takes one look at me and goes, sit down. He gives me a Gatorade, and I had a, I was about ready to fall out. I'm not going to lie. I was I was pretty worked over. You know, you're in a hot vest for quite a long time. And then, you know, we went back up there, and, and uh, that was it. So you were kind of notorious for, uh, number one, never having a radio. So I'm questioning, True. did you actually have a radio to go back and forth, or was that necessity, and then you just came up with, uh, we were worried about RF. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Normally, that would be a Judaism, but this time, actually, Marine One said, hey, don't use your radio, just come back and forth. So, you know, hey, an old man like me, I was wore out. So the... There was an explosion at the uh, vehicle, mm-hmm. and then at what point did y'all just render it? That location just it, it was safe and secure. Well, everybody thinks that the 
that two and a half pounds of composition C4 caught the van on fire, and that's not the case at all. It uh, pushed it in a little bit, came back, and at that time, um, Tom decided that uh, the FBI came there with an MRAP, and they had a big log chain, and uh, we were going to start pulling the doors off with our newer APC, and I had Brandon and Jeremy out there with me. Now, I felt bad because I was in uh, un- I'm in the armor driving, and these poor guys are out there, uh, and little Wayne is standing by. Um, he's going to go in, and uh, he's going to render safe whatever he has inside. And uh, we did pull one of the side doors off, and Wayne got in there, and uh, he was actually able to uh, render safe two pipe bombs. And when he was in the act of doing the third one, uh, what they had used had sprinkled powder through the air, and then when the third one ignited, it caught the whole van on fire. So we all backed out of there, and uh, I remember DFW uh, a bomb squad thought there was like probably another three or four devices went off. I know I heard two pretty good booms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I talked to Wayne about a month ago, and he said that there were two pipe bombs right next to where the subject landed. So yeah. it's a probably, looking back at it, he could have been working on one when Slacker spotted him, but... Uh, there was enough precursors and stuff in there that, and you have to remember that his technology was probably some of the most advanced that had ever been in, deployed in the continental United States up to this time. I mean, this is stuff that would go off in Iraq and Af- Afghanistan. But I said earlier, he made just one minor mistake on his hardwire, and if he hadn't done that, he would have had, been much, much tougher out. Yeah, it, 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 he would have accomplished a, a lot more mm-hmm. than, and you know, I want to, this whole thing's tragic. Yeah. Starting from his 2013 arrest and, and, and offenses against his you know family, and and it turned into two years later. And I've I've heard his family talk about this on the on, on news stories that he has battled men, mental illness for a long time, and then this is exacerbated it, and it set him on a path of just tragedy for himself, and and he almost accomplished uh, a lot more terror on the city. He had, he had a great plan. It just did not, it just, it, he, his execution of it didn't work to what he planned. Yep. A couple, a couple of things didn't go his way and it's, it, it worked out okay for us. Uh, not so good for him, but it was not a, it was not the easiest call we've ever been on. Uh, quickly became one of the, the scariest, uh, with the potential to be even more scary, uh, more devastating. Uh, like he says, the the fates worked in our favor, uh, and it was just like Jude said, a couple couple little things that didn't work the way he planned. Uh, if they had, we'd be having a different conversation today. Yeah, he had a hell of a plan. It just mm-hmm. it it just uh, it didn't work out. Right. Taking of a life is. You know, you're a SWAT operator, you're a sniper, and and you just kind of walked us through that entire process of what you had to do to accomplish your mission of of executing green light when you had a chance. Mm-hmm. Listeners out there that are non-first responders, non-police, and nobody, none of us want to have to do that. Right. And that is something you're going to have to carry yep. forever because of these actions that laid out on June 13th, 2015. Right. 
I have, I have kind of a, a, a mindset that I did not want to let anything ever happen to my guys. I'd rather it happen to me first or me only. Uh, I don't ever want to have to go and explain to my buddies' families, my buddies' wives and, and husbands that I got them hurt or, God forbid, killed because I didn't do my job. I didn't do something when I could have. In my mind, I was never going to let that happen, ever, and I'm still not going to. Whatever I have to do to get that job done, I'm prepared to do that and prepared to deal with the consequences in, in the, the afterlife. Chris Kyle said it one of the best ways. I'm prepared to go in front of God, and this is, I, I, I accept what I did. This is my job. I'm not ashamed of it. It's tough to deal with. But I wouldn't change it. Because I'm not going to let the guy hurt my guys. It's not going to happen. You know, we never pick the time, the place, or how this, how any of this stuff is going to evolve. We just respond to it. You know, you can train and train and train. And it's not the same. But when you get on these hot deals like this, I'm telling you, this cat had unbelievable repertoire of possible skills that he could have done. And when you look back about how nobody was injured or killed, it's unbelievable. It's a miracle. It, it really is. He had planned for everything except one thing he didn't plan for, 5-0. That was the only thing he didn't plan for. And that's what got us through on that day. It's probably one of the first times, well, one of the second times, I guess, that we've ever actually had a piece of equipment and the training and the plan already in place before it was needed. Uh, it's not a, it wasn't a reaction. It was, we'd already planned on something, not like this, but something to this nature occurring. To have something in our arsenal that we can defeat or use to defeat that incident. Uh it's not, it was a lot of hard work to get to that point. Uh, a lot of sweating and a lot of, a lot of arguing and yelling and, and say, this is why we have to have this. And that's, like I said, this is one of the few incidents that we actually had a piece of equipment and a piece of training ready to go before it was actually needed. And again, it's better to have and not need. Yep, mm -hmm. absolutely. All right, guys, we literally have gone through several hours of a step-by-step -step breakdown of this this entire day. And after it's all over, everybody went home at night. What are some final takeaways we can we can leave the listener with? When I look at this operation, I think you know, when you look what a really nice job patrol did, getting them down there. The uh, deputy from DSO, she did us a tremendous failure. Fa favor. Favor. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> tremendous favor. We're getting this guy going from a fluid to a static position. And then I think we did a great job up to Keith's representation. Now, where we were not probably, as Steve would say, industry standard was the RSP on our part. Um some things that we need to uh, shore up would have been uh, 
how we approached the vehicle for the final when we were working with the other agencies. There's some things that we could have done better. And that would be our, I, I believe, would be our biggest takeaway from that. And then also, I think that uh, the preconditioning on this incident helped us a little bit more on the 7 7 incident tragedy that happened a year later. You mean just with this incident being in the back of the mind and right. what we need to be doing better in dealing with right. these? Right. Being aware of secondary devices, people that have switches or could set something off with a cell phone, you know, and X claimed that he had devices all over uh, uh, at, the, at the school there as well. So I think uh, we were, uh, we got some preconditioning here that probably helped us out in the, in the long run or in the other operation. Um, just the RSP stuff needed to be cleaned up. And some of it had to be with our, our relationship with the bomb squad so much better now. When once we got the bomb techs, in the fold with this instead of having two separating uh, identities and now that you know we got little wayne and and red and uh i don't even know the other guy that but they're they're i'm I pretty just know much his nickname <laughs> just call him dirt dirt right. <laughs> what you know they're on they go out on all the operations now and that gives you a force multiplier having a bomb tag there with you so that's uh it's kind of like the swat doctors is a big 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 leap in the uh in the timeline here as we go forward I think for us, it's uh, it keeps those oddities in in your mind. It doesn't. This is before this time we've never dealt with explosives, really, from a bad guy's point of view. Uh, we've done a little bit of it in training just to kind of get the guys something to think about, but they've never seen it in real life. Uh, it's not like we're European law enforcement where you deal with explosives a lot or or automatic weapon. It's you know. We deal with guns and drugs. That's that's our bread and butter. Uh, dealing with bombs, that's something all again different for us. Uh, and the fact that, well, the unfortunate fact that 7-7 happened nearly a year later, it was still in the foref- forefront of everybody's thoughts. You know, what is, I know I got a shooter running around, but did this guy drop devices? Has he been planning this? So it gives the guy something else to start thinking about or at least keeping in their mind. They don't get com- as complacent as they used to be, uh, which is a big thing. Uh, so even now today, when we put on training for the for the young guys, the SWAT guys, just to keep them on their toes, we'll put a device out. See if they recognize it. See if they pick it up. You didn't see that? Oh, okay. All right. Well, this is what you need to look for. Oh, okay. And then we'll tell them why. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, that makes sense now. So then they put it in context, so they can they can get a better frame of reference. Why are we doing this? Why is this so dangerous? It's easy to set up. You know, for a bad guy's point of view, if they're really that true one percenter like this guy was, it's, you know, it can be a really bad day if you don't do your job properly. Iron sharpens iron. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, we learn from, hopefully learn from mistakes or mm-hmm. anything can be done better. Correct. And the last thing I want to say, I want to give a shout out to all our federal brothers. All the help from the, you know the FBI guys, ATF, and we had a briefing probably eight months later that uh, ATF gave, and how they were able to recreate the incident from every phone call, but the all the way down the line, it was, it was tremendous. It really, it was uh, quite impressive how they were able to get everything put into the timeline of how it happened. Guys, I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Um, I want to thank Danny, Kent, for being a part of this. Keith, 
Jude, you are amazing. I thank you for your service. You're welcome.